VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing the program. Let's have a good one. That requires you to pick up the phone, get in the queue, and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, let's begin in the eye-rolling world with weather. Not a bad day here, but now it's a pretty low bar given the weather we've had, the foggy conditions over the last who knows however many days. So... Better a low bar than a low ceiling, so not a bad day here. Right, let's talk a little money. So it's either money makes the world go round, or money is the root of all evil, but what we do know is money talks. It's a couple of Saudi-related matters there, Saudi Arabia. So, you know, you heard me talk about yesterday the fact that the PGA Tour caved into the Saudi oil money, and there's some merge between when they once hated the Live Tour. Now, of course, they're all buddy-buddy. Then you talk about Saudi money in sports. They generally just focus on European sports, but now they've got a foothold with that PGA Tour issue in North America and a solid foothold at that. You know, some people get really frustrated about the amount of money paid to athletes. I guess the owners of the various teams will pay whatever they want to the stars that will either sell tickets or help them win games. So they've got a value metrics associated with athletes, but I understand people's frustrations when you see people hitting a ball or a puck or whatever, making tens of millions of dollars a year. And then you look at the Saudi money that was offered to probably and arguably the greatest soccer player or footballer of all time, Lionel Messi from Argentina, right? I mean, he's a seven-time world player of the year, the Ballon d'Or. There was an offer from the Saudis for him to go, just like uh, Ronaldo and Benzema and whoever, to play in Saudi Arabia. $1.6 billion over three years. $1.6 billion, three years for a guy who, obviously he's got some left in the tank, given his performance at the most recent World Cup. But the end of his career is right around the corner. So they were going to offer him in excess of $500 million a year to play a bit of soccer in Saudi Arabia? You know, on a much brighter sports note, I want to say congratulations, good luck, and safe travels to four Special Olympians who will be competing in Berlin at the Special Olympics World Summer Games on June the 17th. There's Samantha Walsh of Stephenville. Samantha Walsh of Stephenville is going to compete in athletics for Team Canada. All right, who else do we got here? There's going to be 7,000 athletes from 170 countries. Joining Samantha will be Grand Falls Windsor-based golfer uh, Melvin Adams, and he's been at it a long time in Special Olympics. He competes with the Exploits Hurricanes. Powerlifter Daniel Morris of Cornerbrook and fellow Steveville native Michael Budden. In addition to the athletes, uh, da, 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 Chief Medical Officer Neil Cheeseman from this province and Assistant Athletics Coach Rosemary Ryan. So congratulations and good luck to all hands traveling to the Special Olympic World Games, and of course, greatest motto in sports, let me win. But if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. Special Olympics, much brighter sporting note. Sticking with the Saudis. So, there's long been comments and questions about the amount of oil that the Irvings import from Saudi Arabia to their refinery. Now, yesterday in a fairly vague news release, here's what the Irvings said. Today, Irving Oil is announcing that a strategic review of the company is underway and a series of options are being evaluated related to the company's future. No decisions have been made about where this strategic review may lead. Consideration will be given to a new ownership structure, a fuller partial sale, or a change in the portfolio of our assets and how we operate then. All right, so not much meat on that particular bone, but it's a big story. It's easy enough to characterize this as simply a political ploy, 
and some form of potential, I've seen this word used already, as blackmail. Look, the Irvings have had a major foothold in this country all the way back to 1924 when K.C. Irving founded the refinery and put it into operation. The largest refinery in the country processes 320,000 barrels a day, 4,000 employees, so making it one of the most powerful private sector entities in New Brunswick and in the country. They have 900 fueling locations and a network of distribution terminals spawning eastern Canada and New England. Okay, so just wait. I think it's just a matter of time before it's leaked or the Irvings themselves say that they're entertaining preliminary discussions with Saudi Arabia because they already have a contractual relationship with them. So this is a big story. Now, there was just a couple of days ago that there was apparently an error in property taxes. So they've got about a $600,000 exemption from property tax with their, uh, their tank plant or their tank field. So this is all about regulations coming from the federal government, right? Whether it be carbon taxes applied at the end and also about the clean fuel technologies, clean fuel regulations. The tricky part there is that this is playing footloose and fancy for you with the actual truth of the matter. So between 19, 2019 and 2022, the margins of refineries in Atlantic Canada went from just over 10 cents per litre to almost 50 cents per litre. The Atlantic premiers have asked the federal government to delay the imposition of the uh, clean fuel regulations, which come into effect on the 1st of July. But this isn't hurting the company. This is hurting me and you. So I'm not sure where this ends and how much of it is political, how much of it is actually tr uh, strategic, or whether or not it's some form of blackmail. But the worst case scenario, or I guess there would be two, is if the federal government gets involved and buys it or operates it or subsidizes it any further, or someone like the Saudis come in. I mean, talk about worst case scenario stuff. It's a private sector company. They can sell to whoever they please. But it does come with some serious implications. And of course, you know, talking about refined oil, price of gas, little break at the pump overnight, down 5.2 cents per liter, little bit of a break on diesel, down about one and a half cents, furnace oil down. And, but, you know, and then of course, it's that bloody five cents or more that we pay Silver Peak to bring and import and distribute gasoline in particular here in the province. Anyway, big story, man. The Irvings, eh? Hardly hurting. Even during the global crash, they showed profit of some $250 million, you know? And the, the consumption of the product was simply not there. So with subsidies and business loans and just sale of their various products, $250 million in profits when nobody was buying. Or you know what I mean. All right. Sticking with money. It's still mind-boggling to me that the government, or the government, of course, will say, well, it's not us. It's the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district. And they want to have a legal battle with the Churchill family over the treatment of young Carter Churchill, sat in silence for years. This is all about the legal bill. For starters, I've called this defending the indefensible in the past, and I believe that's still to be true. And now we find out that the legal bill that we talked about at $681,000 plus, well, it's not that. It's almost $750,000, $66,000 than was originally reported. When you stand back and think about it, number one, it's awful what happened to Carter Churchill and other children in the province who need some additional supports that don't get it. And acknowledging it and understanding it and still thinking that, that's fine, $780,000 to take this to court to defend themselves in court is ludicrous. Think of the stuff that could be done in the K-12 system with that kind of money. In the most recent budget, inside the envelope of education, not including infrastructure, was about $12 million. 
What more can be done with substitute teachers or cleaning up schools or hiring more permanent full-time teachers as opposed to doing this? It was ridiculous then and even more so now when we have an update on what that legal bill actually was. Man, oh, man. All right. Stick with money for a second. Money makes the world go round. Money talks. A few emails overnight, and sometimes I think it might be a bit of a concerted effort amongst friends that say, we're dealing with very similar life circumstances. Sometimes we need to go to the media to try to get back on the front burner. So be it. This one is important. So with school coming to an end shortly, so signing your child up for a summer camp, or maybe trying to find a daycare space for your five-year-old, what have you, we've got to get this back on the front burner, because sometimes it feels like we're letting their foot off the pedal and potentially government off the hook. It's great for affordability to introduce $10 a day daycare, early childhood education. And it's great to expand the number of seats for early childhood educators. It's great to offer a new pay grid that makes it more attractive to be an ECE. But we still have brutal problems. Just one lady in particular who emailed overnight. She's right at the end of her maternity. She put her child on a wait list when she was in her second trimester of pregnancy. Still doesn't have a spot. And so now they face the obvious decisions. Can she go back to work? Will she have to just take further leave or quit her job? Will they have to leave? So, I mean, it's fine to talk about it. Boy, they broke their shoulders, patting themselves on the back for $10 a day. Got it half right. Got it right on the issue regarding affordability. We are way away from where we need to be with accessibility. So for those women who contacted us last night, there it is back on the front burner. If you want to pick it up, let's go. Stick it with money. So the NLC, this is the epitome of a double-edged sword. So they're talking about an increase in their net earnings for the fourth quarter, and that ended on the 1st of April this year. So $40 million in dividends for the provincial coffers, almost $40 million in the fourth quarter. That's up 15.8%. The total uh, transfer to the province was at $208 million, $2 million less than the previous year. So a couple of reasons why. New collective agreement, some of their input costs are also up freight, security, and what have you. But when we were told that the creation of the Premier's economic recovery team, Moya Green's group, that it was going to be the guiding principle for economic turnaround or economic improvement in the province, what would be nice on some of these things is when they put so much stock in it that there'd be an opportunity for progress or status reports. Give us an idea of what you're actually thinking, because the report is the report. It's simply recommendations and some pretty serious ones therein, but we don't know if there's been any further thought given to them. And one of the big ones that people point to is the NLC. In one corner, it's like, how can we possibly sell something that transfers over $200 million per year to the province? Well, that doesn't all go away. There's still an excise tax on anything that could be sold in the world of spirits, beer, wine. But it's the overhead that they cost. You know, and it's the price for employees and their benefits packages and logistical costs that would also go by the wayside if it was privatized. We haven't even heard government uh, define what that would what, pardon me, what it might look like. Our relationship with the LCBO, the largest uh, purchaser of alcohol in the country. So what does it mean? And no update. Same thing with Bull Arm. Even though Bull Arm is busy as a bee out there with the Terra Nova FPSO in for needed repairs, Marble trying to do, have tried to ditch or divest Marble for a long, long time, motor vehicle, and, of course, our equity stake in the oil business. So, on one hand, it's extremely important body of work being done. On the other, not really any mention of it since maybe after a week after the report was publicly released, bit of buzz, and then it went away. You want to take it on? Let's go. 
talk about an interesting problem to have. Without question, there are going to be approvals given to some of these wind to hydrogen to ammonia proposals. It's going to happen. If you read between the lines, which does not take a magnifying glass, the province is bullish on it. Various communities are absolutely bullish on it. Now, there will be some opposition from some advocacy groups inside the environmental window. There will be individuals who are completely opposed. But there's lots of bullish optimism in many, many corners. So it just stands to reason that at some point, some of these proposals will be given the green light. The interesting question that needs to be asked is, if they're all given the approvals simultaneously or very close time frame between the others, do we even have people to work on these projects? Weird problem to have, right? So some of the numbers that have been thrown around, Everwind's proposal, they say they require up to 5,000 jobs during the construction phase. Some will be only there for a couple of weeks. Some will be there for a couple of years. World Energy GH2, 2,500 direct and indir indirect jobs there. The Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation say they need another 2,000 construction jobs. So we don't know how many of these projects are going to get approved, but here's a quote coming from someone who's at the helm of one of these projects. These are projects that will require thousands of people to build. If you have too many competing projects at the same time, you'll max out your capacity domestically, and the price of these projects will skyrocket and jeopardize all of them. Bit of a quagmire. It really, truly is. Now, you might see some expats come home to take on a couple of years' worth of construction jobs and, of course, add into the complexity of the issue. More and more people coming, regardless of who they are or where they come from, we're still in the middle of a housing crunch. So I think Darren King's making time for us today, is he, David, at some point? So, again, now they're pretty optimistic that they'll be able to do this, whether it be with subcontractors for the mainland. And we don't know about the timing of all of these projects, however many get approved. But that is a strange place to find yourself. It really, truly is. I mean, there's lots of busy work inside the trades envelope going on right now at this moment in time. So that is a strange story to try to wrap your mind around about how that is exactly going to work. But because private companies, do you think there's going to be any opportunity or willingness to stagger their work? Everybody wants to be first out of the gate. Everybody wants to be the first to compete, uh, complete. Now, World Energy GH2 has a much more aggressive timeline than the others, but you can't foresee a spot where they'll say, oh, no, 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 you go first. Oh, don't worry about us. We'll hang back and watch you get built, get a foothold in the market, start being profitable while we allow you to complete your work. We'll just stand back. That's not going to happen. So I wonder how the government views that possibility when they talk about that. Okay. We did a great job with real campaigns about encouraging women to join the trades. Now you move off into healthcare, and I've said this a couple of times, a couple of people nodded, a couple of people scoffed. It's about time that we have a concerted effort and a campaign to encourage men to become nurses. Now, men in the nursing school seats have increased year over year. Nowhere near, of course, the number of women in the profession. But if we are struggling, do you think there would be any success in having a men in nursing campaign? I would think I speak for most when saying, if I'm in a healthcare setting and I need a registered nurse to attend to me on whatever front, I have no care in the world about where you're from, man, woman. As long as you have the training and the professionalism and the bedside manner, I think that's all we really care about as patients. But anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. Sticking with healthcare for a second. This is about the wait times for hip and knee replacement. So we know now that they've entered into this day surgery, and you can get it done in various parts of the province. I think St. Anthony Carbonier, and of course here in town. 
But the backlog has not been addressed, has not seen any appreciable decrease in the numbers of people waiting. There's apparently some 1,900 people on that wait list. It hasn't changed. And, you know, even add to it, there's people from St. John's that are being flown to St. Anthony on the government dime, housed on the government dime, fed on the government dime, and then being flown back to their hometown here in St. John's or surrounding area, as opposed to just getting it done at the health sciences. That's a strange one. But here's some numbers, and this is coming directly from surgeons in the field. So for starters, the backlog is still at 1,900 people. The letter coming from a surgeon says peak surgery rate occurred in 2018 to 2019 with close to 1,100 joint surgeries completed. Projections show that completing 1,100 cases annually will still result in waitlist growth to 4,500 people by the third quarter of 2029. Wait times. National benchmark for hip replacement is 182 days, which is just about six months. The target for Eastern Health, they hit 35% of patients, but 9 out of 10 patients have their surgeries within about 22 months, so the backlog grows and the wait times have not come down commensurate with the plan. Okay. couple of warnings. <sighs> Man, scammers. So the grocery rebate has now been sent out. There is a scam surrounding the grocery rebate. You get a text or an email asking you to click on for more information to ensure whatever. If you qualified for the GST after filing your taxes, there's no need to apply for the grocery rebate. It's automatic. So ignore, delete, don't get caught in that particular world. All right, a couple of quick notes before we get to your calls. How are we doing out there, Dave? Housework got a little easier on this date in a couple of different years. The washing machine which was a huge advancement. It was patented by a Quebecer, actually, Noah Cushing, in 1824. And then Eves W. McAfee of Chicago patented the first vacuum cleaner in 1869, calling it the sweeping machine. And speaking of the chores in the home, I want to say a special hello and thanks for everything you do to three great cooks, friends of mine out at Echo Pond, Gloria, Diane, and Susan. All happen to be from Mount Carmel in St. Mary's Bay. So they're doing a great job for the attendees at Echo Pond, formerly known as the Brother Brennan Center. So between the teachers and the students who are having a great time, they're having great meals too. So thanks a lot. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Gloria, Diane, and Susan. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to David Tipton. He's a program manager with Youth Outreach and Mentoring Oceans Advance, the Ocean Careers Immersion Program. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, happy World Oceans Day. The very same to you. Happy World Oceans Day. Absolutely right. There should be no end to the talk about oceans and ocean science and research, this province being the center of excellence on that front. But inside this career immersion program, what are the intended goals? So the goals of our program are really to reach out to youth and get them interested in ocean careers. Uh, that really comes from a driving force from the industry sector. Uh, right now, they're calling out for talent development and workforce development. If you touch on any of the, especially the ocean tech sector and any of the you know, marine seagoing jobs, all those companies right now are open and looking for people to work. Uh, please go on the job sites and check out what they have available right now, for sure. I don't want to derail this at all because I think it's important. But remember, like when I was a high schooler and people were thinking about career opportunities when they're going to post-secondary, everybody but a couple wanted to be a marine biologist. So all of a sudden, then we had people going back to try to reskill or to retrain in a different branch of ocean interest or curiosity or research. So on this front, give us some of the 
details or examples of where there is a shortage of people to work in this interesting field? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so, uh, Patty, frankly, I'd say right across the board, our program uh, right now partners with uh, the Council of Marine Professional Associates, uh, the Aquaculture Industry Association, and Econext. So that's the environmental, that's ship marine transportation, uh, and that's aquaculture. All those uh, areas are calling out for people. Uh, specifically, yes, people want to go into marine biology. People want to go into the, the ocean technology sector. We've seen all of the energy and dollars going into the, into the technology sector uh, recently, which is fantastic. And a lot of our homegrown ocean tech companies uh, are looking for data scientists, they're looking for software developers. They're looking for 3D modelers. They're looking for uh, people who can de design vessels. Uh, Canada, you know, just recently re-announced money towards uh, replacing all the small vessels uh, within the uh, Canadian Coast Guard fleet. So, you know, these are investments that'll be, you know, year over year and add a lot of stability to the ocean sector. Uh, we've all heard, you know, if you're in oceans, you've heard of the ocean supercluster, uh, and that's been uh, re-upped for, for the next five or six years, uh, multi-million dollar uh, investments by industry matched by, by government. Uh, so right now and into the future, uh, we expect to see uh, jobs increasing, and we're really trying to build that talent pool uh, so that uh, we have those resources ready when we need them. So how does an awareness campaign work? Because people take two different tacks, right? They either just put it out there, they blast it far and wide on social media, they hope that it resonates in the hearts and the minds of uh, students or their teachers or their uh, faculty advisors at university. So do you go directly to where they are or do you hope they come to you? Uh, we, we, do, we do both, uh, Patty. So uh, we've uh, partnered with uh, the NLESD, so they send our information directly out to the schools. And we have a program that is virtual that takes uh, ocean professionals uh, for a for a discussion into classrooms. So we connect virtually with the career development classrooms. We have curriculum links uh, made for their teachers, and really the discussion is less about you know, hey, come work for our oceans company because we all know that you know we've been doing that for years. That doesn't necessarily work. Uh, the discussion is much more about people's individuals' passions and paths, how that aligns with what they do, how they give back to the community, uh, and hoping to sort of uh, spark an interest or allowing people to sort of see themselves in those careers uh, in the future. So that's how we sort of bring things right into the classroom for the students. So far, we've hit over 450 students uh, throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. That's the advantage of doing it virtually. Um, and we also bring students to the workplaces. So we do that through a uh, summer internship program. Uh, so this year's summer internship program will uh, start this July 10th. And it's a six-week paid summer internship program. So we pay the high school students, and they're placed in, I think this year we have 11 host companies in St. John's, Cornerbrook, St. Albans, Marystown, Petty Harbor, Mount Pearl, uh, Paradise. And uh, and they have six weeks with working with real projects uh, that are designed in collaboration with the students and with their interests in the oceans. Uh, this year we had over 80 applicants uh, for 15 positions. 
no better way to uh, get some spark your interest or further spark your interest than a paid internship. And of course, for those who get one of these internships over the summer, you get to kind of bolster your own resume, regardless of where you land, whether or not that company is your end employer. So everything about a paid internship works. So Inside of all of these, what are the hopeful goals? And I know broad strokes to make sure we have the talent pool here available to fill the gaps. But at the, I guess, at the 50,000 feet above sea level versus 100, what are we hoping the outcome will be here? Do you have a benchmark or, you know, a milestone you want to achieve with numbers of companies involved or numbers of students involved? How does it look? Yeah, so uh, we're, <laughs> to, be, to be honest, we're, we're above our target uh, for this year. So our target for this year was uh, 12 uh, internships. Uh, and we've found placements for uh, for 15, so we're sort of uh, we're, we're above that right now. Uh, I, I will say, when you get into program evaluation on things that are this is for high school students, I should say high school students. Uh, so our our goal is to increase enrollment in programs at the Marine Institute that are ocean based programs at uh, Marine Institute uh, at Memorial University, including. Uh, engineering and business, uh, giving students the ability to look at uh, applying those interests to ocean sectors, and of course, uh, programs at the College of the North Atlantic. Uh, you mentioned sort of bolstering your resume. So part of what we do is we also do uh, professional development sessions where we connect all of the interns right across the province uh, together every Friday afternoon. Uh, we will have discussions from all of the post-secondary institutions. We have uh, discussions and presentations from uh, groups like uh, Futurepreneur, Students on Ice, around starting your own career or, or your own business in the ocean, um, and uh, how to contribute back to your community as well. I like that entrepreneurial inclusion there because that's sometimes lost in some of these programs, so that's key. And you know, post-secondary they will gear their number of seats in one course or another or expand course offerings based on what they see as levels of interest and gaps in the workforce. You know, and a Memorial University might take a different tack than the College of North Atlantic or the Marine Institute, who can indeed be looking at the workforce, looking at gaps, tailoring their offerings to exactly that. So what do you need folks to do if they want to speak with you, contact your organization, get more info, or get included? Yeah. Certainly. Uh, so right now, uh, you can reach out, you know, directly to me. I still have a, uh, we still have one internship position open uh, in the St. Albans area. Uh, so if you're in the St. Albans area and you're a high school student, reach out. Uh, it's david.tipton, T-I-P-T-O-N, at oceansadvance.net, uh, or you can go to oceansadvance.net, all one word, uh, and uh, click Youth Outreach and find out more about our program uh, as well. Good luck with it. We appreciate your time this morning. And if you didn't get a chance to jot that down, you just send me an email and I'll forward along David Tipton's uh, contact deets to you. Thanks for this this morning. Wonderful. Uh, like I said, have a wonderful World Oceans Day, Patty. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. Happy to do it. See you, David. Okay, bye. Right, bye-bye. David Tipton, Program Manager, Youth Outreach and Mentoring, the Oceans Courses Immersion Program. Nice. Quick mention for those of you who may indeed need to see a doctor having a hard time finding one, at the there's going to be a pop-up uh, walking clinic at Proactive Wellness Center. Dr. Jessica Fowler offer an appointment based on walking clinic, non non urgent care appointments only, please. Dr. Fowler will not be refilling or prescribing narcotics. It happens tomorrow, Friday the 9th of June, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and then again from 2 to 4. The pop-up clinic is by appointment only. If you're trying to book an appointment, you call 709. 800 90 
50, choose option 9. And Proactive Wellness is right here on Kemmout Road at number 300 Kemmout Road. Let's take a break. Talk away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Claire, you're on the air. Yes, calling in on the windmill. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so maybe calling in is just now 90% against it. Yeah, nobody really knows what those numbers are. Of course not. No, they don't. I think it's the other way around, though. I could be wrong. I think it's 90% more. But uh, anyway, that's, that's besides the point. But uh, I don't know. She's after calling in before. You know, I don't know. Well, I mean, if you hear from Mr. Risley, he says the vast majority are in support. You hear from some of the locals, they'll say the vast majority aren't in support. I don't know what the numbers would be. I think both sides probably exaggerate their position. And I don't know how you factor that into whether or not, as people refer to it as a social license, whether that means they go or they don't or what what have you. But some of these proposals are absolutely getting the green light. Yeah, Yeah, that's going ahead anyway, no matter what they do. Well, anyway, no, but they originally even offered to, uh, they got the, the water turned down right there now. Uh, there's a public water there told me there's sore runs into one brook, three sores. And uh, their water's turned down. He offered to get good water for them. I suppose he's going to uh, drill a well, I suppose. And they turned that down. They didn't, you know, I don't know. Well, it's her. She's after calling in a few times now, but I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I, to- I, I hope it goes ahead. It's a very, very little, very little pollution. So, you know, windmill, what pollution is it going to do? You know, they got You come down from Alberta. I've talked to fellas that drove down from Alberta. And all the way down, you'll see them, you know. Well, wind farms are nothing new in this world, period. You go to certain countries in Europe, for instance, and that you can see them far and wide. You know, go to Scotland or in Germany or a place like that. So this is not new. The only new part about this is that we're just not using wind power and battery storage for domestic normal use. This is, of course, for a very specific application for uh, using the wind and the power for the hydrogen, the creation of the hydrogen, the electrolysis, and then the, the transformation into ammonia to be sold elsewhere. Currently, none of the proposals are for domestic use, so it's a little bit new. This would be on a scale never seen in North America, but that doesn't mean that it can't work. And the, the issues regarding the cost at the end for the customer and securing the business or their, pardon me, their markets. That's not really my concern or my worry. That would be Risley's or anybody else who's got a proposal in front of government. So I don't know. I think we're going to hear by the end of this month, early next month, who moves on to the next round. But certainly some of these are going to go ahead. You're exactly right, my buddy. Oh, yeah. But uh, there's people going to complain anyway, no matter what. But anyway, Stephen will have its ups and downs, a lot of them, like the base floors. Line more come in deck laws, Ebony Bigelman in deck laws. The airport finally a goal. And, uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. That's still not settled as far as I can tell. That's a, you know, a couple of million dollars been transferred, but of course the original proposal brought forward by Mr. Diamond was five hundred million, so there's a bit of a gap in those two numbers. Ah, big gap. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. But anyway the port is going, so that's one good thing. And for the airport can go, that's gonna be a wonderful thing. Claire, appreciate the time this morning. Yeah, no problem. You, you have a good day. You too, sir. All the best. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really, I don't think it's 
cut and dry how many people or what percentage of the population on the Port of Port Peninsula are all in or all out. You know, uh, again, both sides say vastly different things regarding the amount of support or the amount of opposition to the project and how that gets factored into government's eventual decision. And it is referred to as a social license. And I think that's not an unfair characteristic because that's kind of part of it. And it long has been. What impact it really does have at the end of the day inside the Department of the Environment or Finance or Ener Energy, Industry and Technology? I'll leave that up to you. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Gord Piercy from the Association of Allied Health Professionals. Good morning, Gord. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Good That's to talk fun. to you this morning. Nice to have you on the good. show. Yes, yeah, always great to connect uh, from time to time. It's always uh, good to be talking with you. So, Patty, I just want to talk this morning a little bit about, uh, just want to let you know that the Association of Allied Health Professionals, we are meeting for our biennial general meeting tomorrow here in St. John's. We've got over 100 of our members uh, coming into the city, and a lot of people are in the city, of course, but uh, we've got people from, coming from all over the province. And uh, it's going to be a good day, I think. We're, we're really excited. And uh, it's a one-day event because, as you know, it's hard to get health professionals out of their workplaces. So uh, it's, uh, we're just want to kind of put it out there and tell people we were getting together this week. Allied health, uh, allied health professionals is an interesting group, and what I mean by that is, you're like, for instance, you're not part of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor. Of course, you will work with other unions like NAEP and QP and otherwise because you've got similar concerns with whether it be a public sector pension reform and those types of issues and rate of pay. But just describe for folks who don't know, because everyone knows QP and NAEP and the like, or the registered nurses union, or the association of psychologists, or nurse practitioners. Who are you guys? Well, Patty, actually, the first thing, before I get into that, I will say to you that we are actually members of the Federation of Labor. We joined about, oh. gosh, 18 months ago, I think. And, uh, I did not that, know that. That was, a, that was a good move for us, and we're really, really excited about that. But just to get into your other question, um, you know, uh, Allied Health, we're, we're hovering about 800. Uh, we have people on leaves and different things, so there's always, we still consider those people members. But we're, we're, we're a healthcare union like NAEP, like CUPE, like the Nurses Union. And we have, we have about 26, 28 occupation groups. I never exactly know that number. But uh, broad range of professions, and it's your healthcare practitioners, uh, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, social work, psychology, respiratory therapy, uh, medical flight specialists, which are the people who do those air transports, basically run a hospital in the sky <laughs> at uh, thousands of feet in the air. And, uh, you know, again, 26 groups. Some of them we only have one, two, three members, and then some of them, you know, I think we have 100 pharmacists. I think we have probably 160 social workers. So the numbers are really broad across the spectrum, but uh, an interesting group. Uh, again, all healthcare clinicians, and, you know, we all do different things. We're all differently trained sets of eyes, but we, we all kind of see things you know, we see it differently, but we also see it the same as well. So, uh, you know, the strength that brings to the healthcare team for sure. So, inside, like when we hear from the Registered Nurses Union, and they're involved in contract negotiations now, and it's all about retention, 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 and expanding seats and bonuses offered. And same thing when we talk about family doctors and the like. Inside your group, I heard respiratory therapists as one. We've seen those uh, that occupation or that discipline in the news. So, your concerns, I would imagine, and you can tell me whether or not this is accurate is that the shortage issues, work-life balance, rate of pay, is very similar with the groups you represent to the other groups that might be getting more headlines. 
Very much so, Patty. We're, we're dealing with all those same issues. And, and we probably have a few unique ones, too. Again, some of our, and I'll speak to our rural departments, a lot of our rural services, uh, you know, when I think about like GB Cross Hospital in Clarenville and Bonavista and, and Durham Peninsula, in some of those communities, we have very small numbers. You may have two, three-person departments or services. And that in and of itself poses unique challenges. So I'll just give you a quick example. If you have a three-person physiotherapy department in one of these smaller hospitals and you lose one staff, the workload changes exponentially for the two staff that are remaining. So, you know, while we're not big departments, we have a big impact. But when we do lose someone like that, and it might not seem like you know, a big deal, one physiotherapist resigns or whatever, um, whatever group that might be, it does have a major impact on the service, the clinicians who are left behind. And, of course, it often expands wait lists and makes wait times longer, which uh, is really concerning. So that's one of the, the things, you know, and we're collective bargaining currently as well. And we're always trying to communicate those little nuances to government about how something like that can have a really um, significant impact on on the workloads of clinicians, but also patient access to services uh, across the province. For sure. So what are the top agenda items you'd like to, for us to know about before we let you go this morning for this meeting? <laughs> Well, you know, one thing I'll say to you, Patty, again, you know, we've talked about things around recruitment and retention. We've been really, you know, we've been really trying to get out to our membership and talk about, you know, what they've been going through. Our members are here to talk, which is really awesome, and we're really excited to hear that. As we all know, healthcare has been through a lot in the last three years. You know, and, and I don't think it's a shocker to anyone that the system is struggling and uh, continues to do so. And, you know, so we're, right now we're at a point where, you know, we're, we're collective bargaining. We really want to just hear our members' stories, talk about what's been happening, some of the experiences that they're, you know, dealing with and finding on their work, you know, daily work schedules. You know, the other thing I'll say to Patty, and I know, I know Yvette's been talking to your folks about recruitment and retention. We're on the same bandwagon with that. But I will say this. When you're collective bargaining, you can't talk a whole lot of details. But I will make this point. A strong progressive collective agreement is probably the best recruitment and retention tool that any of us can have, whether that's government, whether that's the union trying to advocate for hiring, whether that's the employer itself, the new health authority. If we have a strong collective agreement, progressive, competitive, all those things, that is probably the very best thing that any of the health professions can have for recruitment and retention. If we can say when we're, looking, we're hiring young speech pathologists or new dietitians, this is what we have to offer you. This is what, you know, if you come to work with us, you know, this is what we can offer you. And these are the things that I think is paramount at this point in time. We're at an interesting crossroads in healthcare, Patty. I think the next few years is going to mean a lot for the healthcare system in general. But I'm also, our members have said the next few years is going to be significant for them. As you know, Patty, our, our members, they have options, you know, whether, you know, pharmacists can go to work other places. Uh, you know, we have private practice areas where physiotherapy, psychology, some of those professions can go work. It, it's an interesting time, and we're certainly at a crossroads. And I hope that when we get to that crossroads with government, we go down the right street. I really hope. Let's hope so, Gord. Good luck with the meeting, and I appreciate the time this morning. Yes, always good to talk to you, Patty. Take care, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. I look forward to it. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gord Piercy, the Association of Allied Health Professionals. Okay. 
Well, you know the conversation regarding tourism season and some of the pitfalls or the hurdles that tourists have to clear. You know, whether it be the price or the cost of getting here and accessibility issues, but when you arrive, the opportunity to find a rental car. It has been an issue that has been dominating the tourism conversation for a number of years. It seems to have been gotten worse over the last couple of years. But then another option came to town, Turo, right? An online application where you could put your car in the fold, and if you have the opportunity to put your car out there for someone to rent, a few bucks in your pocket, let's see if we can get a better understanding of how it works and the experience of a Turo host. Last year, Jennifer Cummings had her car in it. Let's see what she has to say right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Great. Okay, so I've heard so many people call. Like one lady called last week. Her brother wanted to come home for a visit this summer. The only option was for 10 days of a rental car for about $4,000. Toro came to town, and I think it eased the pain a little bit. How does it work? It's basically, as people describe it, it's like an Airbnb for cars. So somebody can join up, join up as a host and list their vehicle. It does have to meet certain requirements. The vehicle cannot be more than 12 years old. It cannot have more than 200,000 kilometers on it when you list it. Uh, it has to go through an annual safety inspection. And you have to provide proper registration It can't and insurance. It can't be um, in an accident, so it can't be a salvage vehicle. So it, it is a safe place for people to rent cars. I know that I get a lot of messages as a host from people who are slightly nervous, like, I've never done this before, this is my first time, what if you cancel the trip on me, am I stuck without a car? So there are a lot of people who are trying it because they really don't have a choice. Um, And I guess that my goal as a host is to make sure they keep coming back and to tell them that it is, you know, that easy and, you know, the cars are good and in good shape and in good condition and uh, hopefully make their vacation a lot more enjoyable. Well, that would be the intended goal. So for folks who are thinking, well, I might do this, but I have some worries and I have some questions. Number one would be so many people, not me, but a lot of people, when they rent the car, they drive it like they stole it. How do you give yourself some comfort that they're going to treat the vehicle the way you would treat your own vehicle? Um, We haven't had many issues. Um, My fiance and I manage these cars. So just to give perspective, when I say we haven't had many issues, we are one trip shy of 200 since last year. We have seven cars on the platform, and I can probably count on one hand the time out of 200 that these cars have come back where I just want to sit down and cry. Um, But most of the time, the thing with Turo is, I guess the same thing with Airbnb and hotels, the difference is they know that these cars belong to you. And I find they treat them better. We're not a huge corporation. I don't have, you know, 700 cars behind me to swap out to the next renter. So I find that people tend to treat them better because there is that connection. It's like, you know, this is not enterprise, it's not budget. If I destroy this car, poor Jennifer is going to suffer. (laughs) So I find that people are generally nicer to them. That makes sense to me because, you know, it's that cold, faceless company that, you know, you say, okay, I'll take the insurance and then you don't really, some people really don't care about the car after they hop in and drive away. So that's a good thing. People also have questions about insurance. How does insurance work? It's exactly like a rental car. So when you book a car with Turo, they will ask you if you want to purchase your own insurance. All the vehicles are insured for you hitting somebody else. The same way, like you pay that fee when you book your car on Turo. So if you get into an accident, you are covered for the other person's car that you hit. But if you don't purchase insurance, you're not covered for my car. And you are 100 
100% responsible for the damage done to mine. A lot of people will call their credit cards and uh, tell them I'm renting a car on Turo. And for the most part, I've had most people tell me that the insurance, that their credit card insurance will cover Turo as a rental car. Uh, but, yeah, it's exactly the same process as if you were standing in a line at budget and they say, do you want to insure this car? Like, it's up to you, yes or no. But, you know, if you damage it, you are responsible for the um, damage repairs. Yeah, so, I mean, so nothing really changed in your world. And so I think you said you have seven cars on the platform. Let's talk about how much money you made. So, for instance, just pick one of the cars. Were they all rented about the same amount of time last year by the same amount of uh, customers or clients? Last year I had... Four. Um, this year I have seven. So I can look at the, a couple that we had last year versus this year. Um, my Nissan Kicks, two of those. I have two 2019 Nissan Kicks. They seem to be the most popular. And most of my cars during the summer will get me between five dollars to $6,000 a month. So significant. Yes. And then one thing I do point out to people is that it's not exactly passive income. It is a lot of work. Uh, a lot of people will say, you know, this is an easy way to make money. But, you know, if you take it serious like we do and the customer experience is number one, like they have to be cleaned in between every trip. They had to be washed inside and out. And if you offer delivery, then, you know, that's another um, aspect that needs to be dealt with. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely easy for people to make money. But, you know, it's not exactly passive where, you know, we're looking for people who are you know, going to understand that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to get into your personal business. So when it's off season, do you just simply park them and take the insurance off or a bulk of the insurance? Because there's a lot of overhead outside of the so-called peak tourism season. Definitely. So for us, it's a game of buying and selling. Uh, we sold one last year and went down to three which we rented during this winter. We lowered the prices a little bit, you know, seasonal rush, and they were kind of steady uh, in and out now and, and then. Uh, definitely wasn't the rush. And then in the spring, we bought more. So we've added three this year, and it's, yeah, it's just a game of buying and selling. We don't park them. We look at the, the metrics and which ones are getting older, which ones look like they might give us problems because we want to be reliable, and, you know, which ones you know, can we sell for to get our money back and, and move forward? But it's definitely a number of games. Pretty slick. Uh, so how does the bookings look for the summer? I might have five days open between seven vehicles. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My tip, like we, uh, me and my fiance, we have a Facebook page as well um, outside of Turo for, it was called Two Isles. He's from St. Pierre. So um, that's where the name came from, Two Islands in English. And so what I recommend to people is if you can't find something on Turo, just shoot us a message and tell me what you're looking for. Because the way the Turo platform works is you put in your date and your time and it's nothing's available, nothing showed up. However, my car might be available five hours after the time that you put in if someone's bringing it back. So it's, once again, a numbers game. So somebody could message me saying, I, I can't find a car and I need it uh, for Monday at noon, and I may be able to tell them, hey, if you can wait until free, then I can help you. Yeah, same thing when you... Yeah. yeah, same thing with a rental car company. If I say I needed eight a.m. and they and it just pops up nothing, but of course their returns at eleven o'clock, they might have a dozen. So on, exactly. on the mainland, anyway. So that's yeah. interesting. So you've made a real business out of it, and so congratulations on that front. I'm glad to hear people are making that kind of money. Um, 
Uh, I had one other question I wanted to ask you about the Toro business, but I can't remember. Anything else you want to tell people before we say goodbye this morning, Jennifer? No, I mean, I think it's a really great program. And if, if there's one person out there and they're working from home and they've got one car and you want to make a little bit of money, it's an absolute great program. Um, for people like us that want to try to turn it into a bit of a side business, it's still a great program. Oh. A lot more work involved, but it's a great program. I want to ask <laughs> and, about price. So someone said yeah. that, you know, uh, 10 days, 3800 or $4,000. What does it cost to rent off a Toro app of one of your vehicles versus what people see generally with the, the budgets and the enterprises of the world? That's a really great question, and uh, it depends. I have everything from a convertible at $99 a day to, you know, seven-passenger, four-runner at 175 So it all depends on what people are looking for. But we believe in pricing fairly. Could I get $300 a day during the summer for the four-runner? Probably, but I would be twisting people's arm in order to pay that. It's either they pay me that money or they're walking away from their vacation. And to me, that leaves a sour taste in people's mouth, and I don't want them I want them to come back to Turo. So despite the fact that, you know, it's a shortage and I could do surge pricing, uh, we choose not to. So we believe in pricing fairly. And I find that a lot of people think that we are priced you know, similarly or lower than any large corporation. If I went to, say, for instance, Enterprise, uh, I can rent the car using something other than my credit card. I can use maybe AirMoz, for instance, and just have it secured on my credit card. Is there any type of relationship with Toro and any of those types of options like AirMoz, for instance? Not yet, as of this point. I mean, they're growing a lot in Canada. Um, their market has grown substantially. This is the second year for them in Newfoundland. And I know they keep putting out uh, incentives to get people to list their cars and grow larger so what the future holds i don't know but right now it's just credit card well i appreciate your time this morning jennifer sounds like it's going gangbusters for you and your family and thanks for this no problem. Take good care. Bye-bye. And good you luck. Bye. All right. Jennifer Cummings. Seven cars on the platform, so they've made a real business out of it. Some folks you would imagine, for instance, just pick a professional, or maybe a teacher. So you no longer need to commute in and out of school five days a week. So maybe, just maybe, in a two-car family, it might be ideal situation to put a few bucks in your pocket. Sounds like they're making some significant money. But, of course, putting your one car on it for that purpose versus the real business model they've put together with buying and selling vehicles, rotating them in and out. Went from four last year to seven this year. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, quick heads up on the moose. Now, the moose are everywhere, but uh, Route 331 between Twillingate and Lewisport. It's on the road of the aisles by the cave, uh, the Causeway Lounge. Moose in the area, so watch your bobber. How are we doing on the telephone there, Dave? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic entirely up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just want to throw out a special thank you from a local musician. Her name is Hannah Green. Had her guitar stolen this past weekend. They shared the posts all over social media since Sunday past. Hannah is now happy to report that they were found yesterday. Wants to send a special thank you to the public for their help in sharing her posts. They're her prized possessions, and she is grateful to have them back. So whoever was involved in helping Hannah find and get her guitars back, thank you from Hannah and her family. Good stuff there. All right. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, today's a good day to get on the program or elsewhere on our toll-free long-distance number. So 273-5211 or 1-800-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Read this story this morning, and I can't believe it persists. And this is regarding the federal government and their employees and the ability to get paid or get paid the proper amount. And that's, of course, because of the 
plagued Phoenix Pay system. So it was brought to bear in or launched, I guess, in 2016, sole source contract, and it has never ever worked. So at one point there was as many as let's see if I get the numbers. Uh, as of January 2018, there was a high of 384,000 transactions that were in error. It was brought back to worth uh, to 94,000, but now lo and behold, all these years later, as of April this year, there was 209,000 unresolved transactions. Can you imagine that something as fundamental as a payroll software system to ensure that your employees get paid on time in the correct amount, they can't figure it out since 2016 at the federal government? 209,000 unresolved transactions. And, you know, they lead to some pretty serious implications for the individuals and their families. There was a very small compensation dollar offered. I mean, minuscule. When you consider the fact that so many employees, they maxed out their credit cards to pay their bills, they maxed out their line of credit. People have actually lost their homes because the federal government couldn't figure out how to get them paid properly. And here we are, 2023, it launched in 2016, and now over 200,000 transactions that have not been settled. There was one case in this one lady who was pointed to. Her name is Manon Bertrand. The government owes her $82,000. She needs that money so she can properly retire and get her severance package. So in addition to that, she's on long-term disability, has been since 2016 after suffering a second stroke. So she needs to retire, begin collecting her pension, and to qualify for the health benefits attached to her pension. So these are real-life implications. It's not just frustrating, it's changing people's lives. Can you imagine working, and as a result of not getting paid, all your credit cards with interest rates in and around 18 19%, your credit line, which generally coming, generally speaking, comes with uh, the Bank of Canada's number, plus one. So, man, I can't believe that all the way since 2016, this is still happening. And last evening in the House of Commons, I'll call it an interesting night. So, we know that the conversation regarding the budget and the deficit and the whopping big spending numbers are very real and are 100% worthy of discussion and debate. And last night, the option was taken by the Conservative Party leader, Mr. Poliev, to, in essence, filibuster. So he got on his feet at around 7 o'clock and was there for hours. I watched a little bit of it in bed when I was flicking back and forth, and it was interesting. Now, I find the filibuster to be a fairly futile effort because there is a time limit before it's brought back to the House today. And, it, of course, it will pass because the NDP have a supply and confidence agreement with the governing Liberal Party. But Mr. Poliev took to, the, took to his feet last night and was there for quite a long time. Even pointed to things like the International Monetary Fund that they said, of the 38th mo most advanced countries, Canada was at the highest risk of mortgage defaults because of high levels of household debt compared to similar economies. That one jumped off the screen to me a little bit. What's government's role in managing people's individual household debts? We do know that we've exceeded 100% of GDP with national uh, household debts across the country. The number one contributor, of course, is mortgages. So I'm not really sure what we think the government quarter should be doing with how much debt I'm willing to take on. Now, money was cheap, if not free. So people borrowed. They, of course they did. And they did home renovations, and they bought new stuff, and there was a bit of money floating around, which, of course, impacted inflationary pressures, but not so sure what the government quarter should be doing on that front. Now, he's not wrong in pointing out that, you know, there was even a $10 billion increase in the deficit, went from about 30 to about 40 in the most recent budget. But then you look at some of the other numbers where it's hard to square. The most recent economic numbers said that uh, last month, 
there was a 3.2% annualized improvement in the economy, growth. That was higher than the street expected it to be. Then you point to interest rates. The Bank of Canada yesterday, of course, bumped up their interest rate, 25 basis points again. Mortgage rates are not going to start with twos or threes anymore. They're going to start with fours and maybe in the near future fives. Inflation's bounced back, you know, from a high of 8.1 back to 4.4, which is a slight bump April over March. But then you look at some of the big economic numbers where, you know, it's hard to know how weak it is. Now, the economy is as strong as your own personal predicament, right? That's, of course, the reality of life. For some people, doing great. For others, not so much. Last year, the uh, Canada had the highest economic growth in the, G, the G7. So fastest average growth of the economy in the coming year. The credit rating maintained at AAA. The country's deficit to GDP ratio is the lowest in the G7. So, of course, every country and the structure of their economy is slightly different whether it be comparison between us and the UK or Germany or the United States or what have you. But inside the G7 envelope, we seem to be doing pretty good. Sovereign debt is something that every country has taken on in copious amounts during the pandemic. But Mr. Poliev took to the floor last night. If you want to comment on that kind of stuff, you know what to do. Tomorrow, big day for the folks on the Beer Peninsula. We think that there's going to be a finalized deal for some unnamed company to purchase the floor spar mine. Canada Floor Spire carried a whopping big debt, some $140 million, and the secure creditors are going to take a massive loss. That includes the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Apparently, the $6.5 million that we put forward uh, a couple of years ago to keep it in quote-unquote warm idle, to keep it attractive for a suitor, we're apparently going to get all of that back, but there was another $17 million. So whatever substantial loss looks like, now, it's good news for the some 280 people that were employed when the floor spire mine was up and running in full, but that's not necessarily the case for the other secured creditors, what kind of bath they're going to take. My biggest concern, of course, I'd like to see the government get their money back, but it's the $32 million owed to the unsecured creditors. They're not going to get anything, nothing. And some of these businesses, in good faith, did business with Canada Floor Spire, and they're left holding a bag. You know, for some of these small companies, this is a big bill not to get paid. So I feel for them. And that $32 million, that's gone. So we'll see tomorrow about which company is actually the now approved uh, purchaser of the Floor Spire Mine, which has a variety of applications that are in high demand in the country. But we'll find that out and hear more about it tomorrow, we're told. All right, let's go to line number one say good morning to the mayor of Roddington by arm. That's Ken Reed. Good morning, Mayor Reed. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. What's going on? Oh, we're we're in a big state up here this morning. We we got a lot of flooding on the go. What happened? So I mean, I'm not in your neck of the woods. What caused the flooding? Oh, it's just from the rain. We've had uh, a tremendous amount of rain over the last well since Tuesday night, I guess. About how much uh, rain have you had? Uh, between sixty and seventy mils, I've been told, and we got another thirty coming today. And when it comes fast, it's one thing to have it over an extended period of time, but when it comes in short order, that's, of course, where the ground can't keep up, and, of course, the flooding happens. So paint us a picture. How bad is the flooding? Well, yeah, our town, we had a brook that runs right through the middle of town, basically, and it never floods over, but right now it's, it's just the pavement. It's just hanging on. The transportation, uh, Department of Transportation got the road closed there completely right now and just keep my eye on it. And so, we got uh, three houses that's completely surrounded by water. 
I didn't know it was as severe as, as you're describing. And now I'm just popping open a news story, seeing some pictures. Schools closed. So Cloud River Academy, is it closed because of access, or is that school actually flooded as well? No, that one, I don't think there's any any uh, flooding in that is access because a lot of our students come from the, the, like Spider-Arm and Inglee, and you can't get out that way. A desperate state of affairs. So what's the message to the residents? To stay away from, from the Brook area right now, well, transportation is their access in the uh, the scene. And try not to use too much water because our uh, our sewage system and that can't handle all the, the runoff. So, and of course, that's the message for people's safety in the area. What's the conversation sound like with the provincial government for what's next steps? Well, we haven't declared a state of emergency yet because there's nothing we can do, like even if we do call it, but... Uh, we just got to wait it out and see. Well, hopefully the rain isn't as bad as forecasted again for today. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about this morning while we have you, Mayor? No, I just, uh, we got to, like I said, we got other brooks in town that's flooding too, but I mean, that's our major uh, issue right there. It's, uh, hopefully you are able to weather this storm. Didn't mean to offer that pun, but hopefully things work out for you and the residents. And so with the uh, road that has now cut off Anglee, has it been washed out in full or is it simply the water's too deep? What's the state of the road? Um, it's hard to tell right now. The, the, the shoulders of the road is washed away and the pavement in the center of the road, you can see bits of it rolling out into the ocean. Uh, I was asking the the guys there and they said well they don't really know because there's too much water on it to see what's in under but the last time a truck went over it started to, to wobble well hopefully trucks don't continue to go over it so it's not just students cut off coming from Anglee to go to Cloud River there's also some local amenities and real important infrastructure like for instance groceries and hospitals describe the problems or the issue there well the side I'm on is the side that got access out of town to the rest of the province like we got to get there's two gas stations a restaurant uh, the grocery store, and, and then on the other side is the RCMP and the hospital, and like we can't we can't get over there. But uh, they're sending an helicopter in in case people need to cross over for emergencies. I appreciate the time this morning and your uh, description of what's happening in your community. And hopefully, when the water recedes, we get a better idea about the status or the state of that road. Because sometimes when they get washed out in full, it just prolongs the access and prolongs the repairs. Uh, thanks for your time this morning. I wish you and the residents good luck, Mayor Reed. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Mayor Ken Reed in the community of Roddickton by Arm. And, you know, on that front, and, you know, some interesting commentary flowing in, uh, not only about weather, weather phenomena, the frequency, severity of adverse weather conditions, but especially in the world of wildfires. You know, and I'm not going to go too far on it, but there is a huge issue this season. As of yesterday afternoon at 3 p.m., 4 million hectares of land was on fire or had been burned already this fire season. Compare that to a year prior, where there was about 250,000 hectares. So there's a long way from 250,000 hectares to 4 million. Now, absolutely, there have been people who have been uh, caught, charged for arson, and have lit some of these fires. But, of course, arson has been happening forever and a day, and there's no way that this year's arson activity has meant the difference between 250,000 hectares and 4 million. So it's a dire state of affairs in different parts of the country. Air quality, there's something interesting on the air quality. Yesterday, the city of Toronto had the worst air quality index of any city in the world. 
not in North America, in the entire world. The air quality in Toronto yesterday was worse than in Delhi in India. The next six on that list, they all had their air quality index at unhealthy. Toronto's was at hazardous. Even if you look at some of these cities where they have been just pummeled with smoke and quality of air, of course, been really compromised, and even orders or requests to stay indoors, there was all sorts of outdoor activities cancelled. Major League Baseball games and others yesterday cancelled simply because of air quality and smoke. I saw a couple of videos on social media yesterday. You could barely see Manhattan from Brooklyn. I don't know if you've ever been to New York City, but the skyline of Manhattan can be seen for a long, long, long way for the obvious reasons. But in Brooklyn yesterday, you could barely make out the skyline in Manhattan. Remarkable stuff. Even in Washington, D.C., you could, from the, what do they call it, the, uh, the mall? What's the proper word for that mall area where they have those inauguration events? Anyway, uh, the Mall of the Americas, I think it's called. You couldn't see the White House. I mean, it's just dastardly. So when we look at the foggy conditions that I bemoan, and I think many do, rain up in Roddington by arm, the active forest fire season that we've seen, and even in this province, it hasn't been really bad or stuff out of control, but at the end of May, there was 50, we had had 53 fires. That's up from 18 from the same time frame earlier. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, the show is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Gander. He's the Minister of Education. That's John Haggie. Minister Haggie, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. It's been a while since we chat. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning, and it took all I could to not introduce you as the Minister of Health Community Services, which you held for such a long time. Yes, uh, it, it does uh, seem like deja vu. Anyway, today I've got um, some news for uh, the early learning uh, community. Uh, we are beginning uh, consultations uh, to work out uh, the next phase of our early learning action plan. Uh, so over the course of the next three weeks, we will be having public consultations, uh, and um, uh, it's really an opportunity for anybody, uh, people working in the childcare sector, stakeholders, and the public, uh, to give us some feedback on where they think we should go, any policy uh, or, or legislation, regulation changes that they think would be helpful. So it actually starts on June the 12th next week. There are evening uh, sessions, 6 p.m. to 7.30, and that goes for all of them. So the first one on the 12th is in Gander at the College of the North Atlantic, purely a coincidence. Um, the second is uh, 13th, Marystown, Kean College, 14th, Bay Roberts, Kean College, 15th, St. John's College of the North Atlantic, uh, all from 6 till 7.30. The remainder of the schedule, indeed the entire schedule, is posted on the engagenl.ca website. And there is an email there, so if you can't make the in-person meetings, uh, then you can certainly uh, uh, submit uh, material through that route. I think this is really important for us as we, uh, we look to how to take uh, early learning and childcare to the next level as our uh, first phase starts to uh, enter its final stages. Inside a legislative review of the Child Care Act and whatever regulations are in place, you know, those stakeholders would be operators necessarily chiming in or advocacy groups on that front. But for the vast majority of the people of the province who are looking at early childhood education, affordability has been addressed, accessibility not so much. Now, I'm not suggesting we can flip a switch and all of a sudden a new pay grid means a thousand ECEs come out of the woodwork, but accessibility has been a daunting problem. Has it eased any bit at all since the announcement of $10 a day? From where I sit and the stories I hear, it's only gotten worse. 
No, I think the problem is that uh, maybe expectation management. Uh, we have increased capacity, <clears throat> excuse me, by uh, well over uh, 600 places this calendar year already. Um, our challenge is uh, doing two things at once. One is to create new CE, ECEs, and that's a lag time of at least a year for the basic level one and two for the level two. Uh, and at the same time, then, uh, rolling them into jobs. So there are about 245 um, graduates from CNA who are literally have just had their convocation and graduation ceremonies in the last week or so. Uh, they are now uh, hired uh, and will be uh, in the workforce. So that rate of expansion will continue. Uh, we've gone from 45 ECEs trained at CNA in 2019 to 245 in um, the academic 22-23 years. So uh, the rest in terms of the capacity uh, is underway. Uh, but again, <clears throat> we need people to be able to teach it. So it's not happened as fast as everybody wanted. Um, interestingly enough, I'm talking at a, a meeting um, to be held nationally about increasing capacity for childcare at the... Uh, it, it's a, a, a group of... Uh, provinces that are getting together uh, to uh, to talk about how they've they've done it it's a national challenge uh, and you know we are we are doing well we're not nowhere near we, where we need to be yet but we're working on it we've got about 8600 spaces currently okay so i mean that's going to be an issue that i don't know how much time it's going to take but it's pro it's proving to be a massive hurdle for so many families the thought that you might have to decide between working or staying home the need for probably two incomes inside of any normal family to make ends meet and to be able to pay the bills so this is a massive issue so another massive issue is when we say the education system in k-12 in this province is inclusive i know the premier sort of shrugged this off and put it on the desk of uh, the english-speaking school district but can the province even defend the indefensible and over seven, about $750,000 to fight the Carter-Churchill case? Your comments, sir, because for me, that seems to be absurd. It should have never been uh, gone that far. Needless to say, Carter-Churchill should have been treated much better in his uh, school down in Beachy Cove. So defend $750,000 to fight that. I think the challenge is that none of us would have wanted it to go that route. Uh, the facts of the case are that route was not determined by government. Uh, it was not determined by the school district. Uh, at the end of the day, what it did do, I think, is clear the air. Uh, it showed clearly that Carter Churchill uh, now is getting the services that are preferred. I think those were the words of the adjudicator. Uh, and also pointed out that that wasn't the case in the past and uh, provided some uh, um, compensation uh, to the Churchill family for that. Uh, one of the challenges we have acknowledged is an increasing number of students in the K-12 system with exceptionalities. And in actual fact, the identification of those now is 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 actually picking up because of the early learning and childcare piece because these children are often being identified by those care providers and educators prior to entry to the school system part of our approach um, with the integration of the school district is to bring all these stakeholders together uh, from uh, the inclusion community, the disability community, to see what specific needs the D-deaf community, the hard of hearing community who are separate, the blind and visually impaired uh, need, as well as those who have, um, uh, for example, autism spectrum and the Department of Health produces.
introduced the Autism Action Plan, uh, and, and that has changed the way things work. We now have responsive teacher and learning. Our K-6 to curriculum was completely revamped, uh, and teachers are now in a position to refer students for support absent a diagnosis, which wasn't the case some years ago. Uh, and that then enables earlier pickups. What we need to do is make sure our programs are gold standard uh, and meet uh, the Canadian national standard. Uh, and these people are very skilled. Um, there is a gross shortage of ASL interpreters. You may recall during COVID, um, Sheila and Heather, in actual fact, were borrowed by Alberta and Ontario on several occasions to do some of their briefings because of a national shortage. So uh, lots, of, lots of work on the go there and uh, certainly a difficult situation for parents. I acknowledge that. I think the Churchills will dispute the uh, statement you made about it's pretty much been settled, just to paraphrase, with the classroom that Carter was in at East Point Elementary. They point to the fact that even one of the hiring, uh, hiring posts did not require fluency in American Sign Language to get a job inside that hard of hearing or deaf classroom. Yeah, well, there are a variety of skill sets needed there, Paddy, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail specifically, but there are people there with ASL fluency, and there are people whose roles do not require that same level of fluency because they deal with a different uh, cohort within the class. So, um, yes, it certainly needs to be looked at uh, and continue to be monitored. Uh, we have had... Uh, extensive discussions with the deaf, D-deaf, and the hard of hearing community, because there are, there are two groups there with separate distinct needs. Uh, and uh, we are looking now towards uh, a more action-orientated implementation phase uh, so that we can improve services, not just for the D-deaf community, not just for the hard of hearing or the blind and visually impaired, but for all those students with exceptionalities. And the proportion is increasing, and we need to be aware of that and move to address it. I'd like to talk about the body safety program. Now, it's going to be rolled out as a pilot, but the issue is that kind of feels like we're saying, well, uh, students in this school are deserving of acknowledging body safety issues, understanding the risks and the warning signs and what to do about them. It's been test-driven in provinces right across the country for the success and for age appropriateness. Why not just roll it out in full, especially when we're talking about a price tag of implement implementation of about $25,000 and the fact that we know issues regarding children and their safety is really a massive problem, not only up front and face-to-face, -face, but also in the digital corners where the evil is lurking. So why not just roll it out in full? It's been test-driven elsewhere. We know it works, and we know the age appropriateness has been addressed. Why, not, why are we doing a pilot as opposed to just putting it in schools? Several things wrapped up in there, Paddy. We do have a body safety program in uh, K-12 to schools. In actual fact, we have had it for some time, and it is age-appropriate, and it was revamped when the K-6 to curriculum was redone. This is another way of providing additional body safety uh, education. Uh, we are in the process of evaluating a, a pilot. That process was agreed uh, some years ago. Uh, and we are also in discussions with those other jurisdictions, and not all of them have implemented it, uh, those that have, to see uh, how best to do this. I do not want to find myself in a situation next year of putting a program in place and then having to cancel or suspend it because of stuff that we could have known about and could have managed. There is a debate about the cost. The actual licensing for it is only $25,000, but there's a full day of professional development 
for every teacher who administers that. We have 5,100 teachers, and it's $300 a day to provide them with professional development, uh, according to the information I have. So there are some challenges on the fiscal end. Uh, it's not a question of whether we adopt it. It's a question of when and how fast we can implement it. And we've certainly committed to Miss Moore Davis in a meeting I had with her maybe 10 days ago uh, that we would do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're working on it. There's also a number of professional development days already being utilized. I guess it's a matter of prioritizing what's of the m most distinct need in the schools. And I would think the protection of children would be really near the very, very top of that list, so one thing could be bumped out of the PD calendar for next year, and this to be included, I would imagine, which would not impact the fiscal situation at all. Uh, there's also an age-appropriate issue that some families are talking about, and in particular regarding sexual education, whether it be about orientation or ideology. Does the school district, and consequently now the department, now that you're one and the same, is there an annual review of it, an opportunity to hear from people who may indeed be concerned? Because I hear a lot of it, some of it meritous some of it maybe not so what's the approach to talk about that because that has become one of the societal concerns that people talk about i know some of it is probably missing the point but it is real and it is a societal issue it's a very divisive issue what's the process on your desk to look at that issue we have a curriculum review. Uh, as I say, K to six has been completed. Uh, that's not a static process. The curriculum is evaluated on a, on a regular basis. Uh, exactly what cycle is used, I think uh, I would have to uh, go back and find out for you. Uh, but essentially, we have um, uh, the, the opportunity now with the integration to amalgamate the policy writers in the department with the policy uh, and curriculum teachers and implementers that work through the district. And I think there's a, a cohort between the two of around 50 individuals involved in that. So it's a very active area. Um, there are always going to be people whose views on sexuality uh, and uh, uh, gender and these kind of things uh, are different from the majority. Uh, and we have to try and work our way into respect that. There is an age-appropriate piece to this, but it is no... Uh, there's, there's no value to ignoring the subject. And once you don't ignore it and start to bring it into schools, the issue then becomes one of detail and one of appropriateness. We use um, guidance from educators, from professional people uh, who will tell you uh, what the psychological and educational pros and cons are of using certain ways to deliver the curriculum at certain ages. And we're guided by that. We're in the process now of revamping the seven to nine curriculum, the junior high curriculum, having done K to six. And then when that's done, we'll move on to the high school one. But this is all part of a bigger piece about educational transformation. And the department's been slightly reorganized again now to move educational transformation uh, into uh, an area where it's got its own resources uh, to try and um, speed that process up because it's also tied up with a whole pile of other things around results and content and critical thinking and, uh, you know, the diploma piece for high school graduates, these kind of things. So it's a really big area and we have to take it in bite-sized chunks. Last one on education. I do have have a healthcare question I hope you are willing to entertain. We've seen, you know, grab the headlines, PwC, 
Will we see a different look in these schools, uh, particularly the playgrounds and parking lots? Because inside the walls of the schools, there's lots of programs and protocols in place, and it's proven to be pretty effective. But outside, not so much. Commissioners were on the ground at PwC shortly after that issue, that violent assault took place and all the charges that have consequently been laid. Will it look different at the province of schools come September? What happens uh, through the school districts, and as I say, we're in the process of amalgamating and integrating at the moment. So um, they have a uh, regular review of um, school safety and security. And the last one, uh, I think, in the metro area was 2021. But they also do what's called a kind of critical incident debrief. So if there is an incident, like at PwC, um, there are analyses performed with local law enforcement to see uh, what happened, how it could be ameliorated, how it could be improved and mitigated, what needs to happen at that particular school and what's applicable to schools in general. So that's a very active process. It's not just simply a passive occasional review. Um, it, it's a dynamic one that is revised in the light of issues. Uh, but as I've said in other fora, Whilst the school grounds are obviously part of the school, the further away from the school you go, the more it's a community issue uh, as much as a, a school issue. Uh, and we need to work together with local, uh, municipal and uh, provincial law enforcement to to work out what the best approach is for, for any given area. But that sort of behavior is not acceptable in any way, shape or form. And so we need prevention. Uh, we need uh, mitigation strategies. And at the end of the day, you have to accept that some of these acts are criminal and will have to be dealt with through the law enforcement system. I'd like to go back to your days as the Health and Community Services Minister. Ken Dix, pharmacist and Central, says he made the government aware of his concerns regarding dose splitting of Ilea and Lucentis, which comes with a, a multitude of concerns. Did you know it was happening? The issue of um, how pharmacies provide uh, you know, doses of uh, preloaded syringes is down to the pharmacy board, from my recollection. Uh, they regulate that. My understanding is they changed their requirements several times over the last year. And I do remember signing off on some significant investments for hospital pharmacies to make sure they were compliant uh, to do that within the regulations set out by the pharmacy board. Um, beyond that, my recollection uh, of uh, those particular incidents uh, is um, clouded a little bit now by the passage of time. And, and I think I would probably uh, stop at that stage, Paddy. But uh, now that's fair. It might be down to a regulatory body. But even when the 2015 RFP went out, Advanced Care Pharmacy in Ontario, inside their 57-page uh, application, pointed out quite clearly that they were the dose-splitting business. And it's not just about regulatory issues here. It contravenes Section 8 of Canada's Food and Drug Act, clearly. And so Mr. Dick said that the Premier was made aware, the regulatory bodies were made aware, your department was made aware, and it continued for years. Maybe the splitting dose didn't even work. Maybe it contaminated and made this, uh, the issues for age-related uh, macular degeneration worse for people. So... It might be a regulatory issue, but certainly when you knew that Advanced Care Pharmacy said, we're doing this, we're, we boldly told you we are splitting, uh, splitting doses, wouldn't it not be incumbent on the minister responsible to ensure it was not happening, considering it broke the law? 
My recollection is that those RFPs were not issued by the Department of Health and Community Services, but they were rather issued by health authorities. Uh, so that level of supervision would be down to them. Uh, if there were regulatory breaches, uh, my understanding is that they would be investigated directly by the pharmacy board and not necessarily involve the department either. So uh, as I say, uh, my recollection beyond that uh, would uh, would need refreshing, uh, but uh, that's what I can tell you from memory at the moment for sure. There would be something like briefing notes or whatever dating back to that time frame where you could be your memory could be refreshed and consequently we could be more informed. Uh, there's certainly uh, material there. Uh, you are probably aware that by um, by precedent it tends to be that the minister currently in portfolio deals with issues related to the department. Uh, I'm not in a position to comment on some of the policy changes, for example, that Minister Kirby or Minister Hawkins may have uh, brought in, uh, other than in broad brush terms, because I wasn't involved in those decisions. But equally, uh, I don't have access to those materials now, uh, and I would suggest that you could uh, uh, obtain a more informed answer from uh, the current incumbent. And we'll do exactly that. I appreciate your time this morning. Very quickly for the uh, early learning action plan which was the focus of the conversation initially you can get involved it begins on the 12th of june runs to the 27th there's a full schedule available on the government's website you can simply make an email as well if you want to be uh, involved as an in-person session it's elcc so early learning child care uh, review so it's elccl E review echo.nl.ca. If you got echo.nl.ca, if anyone doesn't have a chance to jot that down, send me an email. I'll send them the contact info. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. You're more than welcome, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. 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 All right, let's take a break. When we come back, DMV, don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Evelyn, you're on the air. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm fine. What's up with me? Okay. I'm okay. dealing with a situation with the motor vehicle department. Okay. What's going on? Well, well my eyes, uh, I had my medical done for 75, and and uh, they sent a letter out in a couple of months saying that I had to have it upgraded or, date or uh, examined again, and I did. And I uh, went to an optometrist, and they gave me new, new prescription glasses. And uh, he sent it in. It, that was 24th of March, and he sent it in on the 28th. And I got another letter today saying they're going to cancel my license if, the, if uh, I didn't uh, respond to the uh, information that was supposed to be sent to them. Meanwhile, it was sent on the 28th of March. And so when I got the letter yesterday, I went to the office again of my optometrist, and they faxed it again on the twenty uh, on the seventh of June. And then I uh, I w waited and got altered, and while I was at the office, and asked did they receive the fax, and they said no, I'd have to wait till Monday. So I asked for an email address to email it, and uh, they wouldn't. I wouldn't allow to send it by mail in the post office, so I emailed it again. On uh, yesterday at 1:53, and I'm being told that it's multiple happened to multiple people. I was wondering if you, if, if there any way, or did you know or have heard of this happening with the motor registration? So, if I understand your issue correctly, they simply don't have the information you tried to send them repeatedly. 
They, yeah, repeatedly, they're saying that they're not getting it. They're not getting it. So yesterday I said, could you give me an email address, please? I will email that. So I went back into the optometrist's office, and, and they emailed it there and, and, and put it on my letter there and the date and time. Now I have to wait till Monday to see, and they give me 30 days to get this done. So I went to my MP this morning to see what they can do. And and uh, my uh, the, the letter that my optometrist, the copy that I have, they, he says I'm fit to drive. And I, I already have, uh, it was for, because of con- uh, cataracts. And so I have already had one high done. Now I've got to pay. Now I've had to do extra. I had to buy glasses till I get my eyes done. Now they're no good. I got to have more after. Now I got a uh, phone. I had to get over to doctor, uh, doctor, my other doctor in Gander, and get a letter stating that my cataract was off. One high was done. I've got an email address that people have great success with that I'm going to give you. And it goes right to the top of the food chain at Motor Vehicle. You got a pencil or a pen? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. So it's registrar. Yeah. That's not registrar. Registrar. Okay. How do you spell that? R? R-E-G. R-E-D? R-E-G, as in okay. George. Uh, R-E-G-I-S. Yeah. T-R-A-R. Registrar. Okay. That's how you spell it right there? Okay, and so it's registrar M R D. Yes. At. Yeah. G O V. Yes. Dot N L. Yes. Dot C A. Okay. That should get you some success. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Happy to do it. Good luck. Let me know if it works out, Evelyn. Yes, indeed, I will. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye bye. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how many people I've given that email address to. So obviously I blew right through a break uh, when we had Minister Haggy on. And certainly anything that you want to speak to on that front. And he did, and I guess rightfully, you know, the ministers responsible are generally, generally the ministers to speak to issues inside their portfolio, even if the concern was not during their tenure as said minister. But if that's how they want to do it, then I'm happy to do that as well. So obviously there's so much to talk about with Minister Osborne. And that tampered eye medication, as I said to Kentix yesterday, it's confusing and troubling, all wrapped up into one. All right, let's try to get back on track with the breaks. When we come back, an unbelievable story in the news. Now, a couple on the criminal justice front. Brian Doyle, who killed Greg Parsons' mother, has now been granted day parole. And it's not like it's never happened with these types of criminals in the past, but that's gotten some uh, attention here locally, especially from Greg Parsons, who I'd be up, absolutely up for taking the, uh, a call from Greg. And then we heard, and apparently Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino had no earthly idea. Now, he's not involved with the uh, Correctionals Board directly on day-to-day operations, but notorious evil killer Paul Bernardo has Paul Bernardo has been moved from maximum security at Millhaven Institute to a medium security prison. Whoa. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Hello, Mr. Bailey. How are you this morning? Bad, I suppose. How about you? Good, thanks. I want to talk about the uh, third rail of the criminal justice system, Mr. Bernardo. Yep. Um, He's been moved uh, to a medium security penitentiary in uh, Quebec from uh, Ontario. 
Yeah, one of the most notorious maximum security prisons in the country is, of course, Millhaven in Ontario. The move caught a lot of people off guard. And, of course, everyone I would imagine knows who Paul Bernardo is, but his role, uh, along with Tammy Homolka in the deaths, they call it the schoolgirl killer murders, I think they tagged it in the media, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French back in 1991 and 1992. Yep. He's uh, been declared a dangerous offender. Yep. And uh, according to the uh, press reports that, that I read, which contain psychiatric and psychological assessments of him, he's a, a high-functioning sexual sadist, and he scores extremely high on uh, psychopathy tests, which means uh, he's a psychopath, and uh, he's off the charts, apparently, uh, on, on those scales. Uh, he's an extremely dangerous person. Uh, arguably the most dangerous type of criminal uh, that we can incarcerate in this country. And, uh, you know, public protection is obviously paramount when you're dealing with uh, someone like him. But uh, the Correctional Services and Release Act, which governs uh, people incarcerated like him and and the role that the uh, um, parole board and, and uh, correctional services, uh, you know, they're, they're statutory powers and what they can do and what they can't do um it allows for him to be moved he he can be moved they didn't give a reason why uh he was being moved to the quebec facility uh but there are provisions in the act that that do allow for them to uh for the correctional services people to to give reasons to the public why he's being moved. It's not just what they're saying that, oh, it's privacy legislation and we're bound by privacy legislation that we can't divulge the reasons. Uh, they can. It's in, it's in the act. There are provisions in the act that uh, and they balance, you know, his privacy versus the public interest and things like that. Well, at this point, the Correctional Service of Canada is not telling us what's behind the move. You know, yeah. generally speaking, when you move from maximum to medium and down to minimum, there is an assessment risk to you and to others that's done. The, the problem with all of this is that it leads some people to believe that there might be a day when Paul Bernardo walks out of prison. Of course, he was uh, convicted and sentenced to uh, life without parole until after 25 years, but the dangerous offender status means that th- doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be released. But that's what people automatically think. If your security has been downgraded to medium for maximum, that maybe, just maybe, that's progress towards Mr. Bernardo's freedom, which we can all hope is never the case. Yeah. Uh, the, the dangerous offender uh, designation uh, is, carries an indeterminate sentence. Yeah. It's even worse than a life sentence, uh, believe it or not. It's, it's reserved for the most dangerous uh, offenders. And uh, there are a whole uh, set of criteria set out in the criminal code under uh, you, know, you know what classifies uh, dangerous offender status, and you have to be convicted of a serious personal injury offense, and, and there's you know, a plethora of other uh, criteria there. But uh, I, I feel pretty uh, safe in, in knowing that there's probably a 99% chance that he's never getting out. You would think so. I mean, uh, in addition to the deaths he was convicted of, he admitted to 10 other rapes. And, and this goes to his, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not a mental health expert here, but it goes to uh, to his um, mental uh, health and uh, psychiatric and psychological evaluations of him. Uh, it's the opinion of psychiatrists and, and psychologists that he is a, he's a, he's at the extreme end of psychopathy, and he's extremely dangerous. A psychopath has no insight into their behavior. 
uh, they had no remorse, uh, no guilt, um, and, and, and you know other uh, uh, criteria uh, uh, characteristics. But uh, that, that's um, you know one one of the factors of uh, of sentencing is rehabilitation, and you had to have insight into your crimes that you committed. And uh, psychopaths like him uh, don't apparently, and they, they're very hard to treat. And um, you know, for 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 the purposes of releasing him back into the community, even if it was a, a graduated release program, uh, he still poses a very high risk. I would think so. so. Yeah, you know, double murder, another ten rapes on top of it, and it's it's so bizarre that there was also some controversy with Tammy Homolka stay behind bars. I mean, she was moved from uh, I can't remember uh, it was Joliet or something, one of the maximum security prisons, into what I believe back in the day the uh, press called it adult daycare. There was pictures yeah. of her floating around, her and some other inmates dressed in uh, ball gowns and having birthday cake and all that stuff. And here she was a bloody killer. And then eventually, I think she served her entire sentence, got released sometime two thousand four. Four, five, six, somewhere in that neighborhood. But it's just remarkable that the other person involved in these crimes also had some controversy around how she was incarcerated. And here we are talking about Paul Bernardo, of all people, moving from maximum security to medium with no recognition coming from the, uh, the correctional services. But we do know now that it's under review. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was Carla Mocha. She did uh, the full 12 years of manslaughter. She was convicted on two counts of manslaughter. She also admitted uh, oh, yes. playing... Oh, uh, Carla Mocha, uh, right, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she also um, admitted to um, playing a, uh, a role in the death of her sister, Tammy, by providing uh, veterinary medication to uh, to Paul, her husband at the time, so that he could uh, put her sister into a stupor so that he could uh, sexually assault her. And she subsequently died. She worked at a veterinary clinic, so she had access to veterinary medications and things like that. So I, I, I actually think that Carla Homolka is even more dangerous than her ex-husband. Uh, she just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I mean, even the community didn't know she was coming. If I remember correctly, someone spotted her working at like a Canadian Tire or a Home Depot or something and said, that's Carla Homolka. And then all of a sudden people went, What? She lives here? Anyway, yeah. I'll let you wrap it up before i got to go, Colin. Yeah, she was volunteering, too. On, uh, she has children, young children, and uh, she was volunteering at their school, apparently. And uh, that, that became public knowledge. But, you know, you got to think in her situation now, uh, she has children. And uh, what's the effect of this going to be on her children now? Their, their children have nothing to do with her conduct, right? So it's... it's uh, it's not just it's not just focusing on her now. It's, she has children too, who are, who are who are innocent, and they're innocent third parties, no matter what their mother did. So uh, this is going to have a, a spillover effect on them too. It's it's very sad, you know. Well, we human nature leads us down that path as much as it might be patently unfair. Uh, I appreciate the time, Colin. They're, they're flagging me off to the newscast. Cheers. All the best. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, that news story, I think, caught a lot of people off guard yesterday, including the public safety minister. And I know Mendocino was not involved with the correctional services every day about what prisoners being transferred where and why. But that story, I do think, is cause for concern, I guess, because of the public backlash. There is indeed the decision is now under review at Correctional Services Canada. Anyway, imagine Paul Bernardo. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to a PhD student at Dalhousie University. That's Justine Amendola. Let's go. Good morning, Justine. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm very Thank well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Happy to have you on the show here on World Ocean Day. So is it Amendola or Amendolia? <laughs> um, depends who's pronouncing it. Amendolia is, is fine, but, you know, yeah, I've heard all, all sorts, so we're good. What does your mom say? <laughs> um, I'm a, oh, uh, my mom about my last name. Yeah. Um, Amendolia. Amendolia. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to make sure I get it right because that's easy enough yeah. for me to do. Uh, welcome to the yeah. show. So I know you're doing a lot of work regarding plastics in the ocean. Some people kind of turn a blind eye and they scoff at things like introducing not plastic straws and deal with plastic cutlery and single-use uh, grocery bags, what have you. But the fact of the matter is, now that the nanoplastics have made it into sea, birds, and marine life, and p- consequently part of the food chain, making it back into me, that to me is the red flag of all red flags. Of course, of course. Like any environmental issue, hey, as soon as it touches back with humans, then it's a different story. And unfortunately, plastics aren't uh, immune to that. You know, we've been seeing it in uh, pop up in all sorts of places in the human body, ranging from our lungs to even our brain to our bloodstream. And it's really terrifying because we use plastic almost in every aspect of our daily lives. And at the end of the day, you know, we're slowly having more and more plastic inside of us. And we, the scary part is, is we really don't know what kind of impact that'll have on us down the line. I'm not so sure we even know what kind of impact it's having on uh, marine life, birds and otherwise. Oh, of course. And with World's Oceans Day, I think one thing that's really important to know is is that, um, you know, just obviously St. John's is super, super privileged in having an ocean right beside, as is uh, Halifax and and Victoria, B.C. and and places all over Canada. But uh, really, the issue of plastic pollution stems from our, our cities. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily live by an ocean um, to make a difference uh, with ocean issues like plastic pollution because uh, being conscious of wh- what kind of materials we use, how we dispose of them, and making sure it stays off of our streets and our sewers uh, can make a world of an impact with keeping them out of our environment. You're the academic here. I probably shouldn't have started with my thoughts on nanoplastics. So how do you think the, <laughs> how do you think the plastic okay. conversation should, should start? Because now we focus on uh, government policy as opposed to real-life impact. So if you had George Rothers to guide the national conversation regarding plastic, I know we should be talking a lot about uh, reducing plastic as opposed to recycling and reusing because we just have to, you know, I shouldn't have to go to the grocery store see a cucumber uh, individually wrapped. And if I go to cut open a Power Ranger at Christmas, the amount of plastic is just obscene. So how do you think we should have this conversation? Totally. And that's such a great uh, way to start off. One thing about my background that I would love to share with the audience is I spent a couple of years working with Mon, um, specifically part of a research team, uh, the PODS, PODS team, which was the Placentia Ocean Debris Survey Team. And uh, we spent two years of our lives, you know, traveling from beach to beach all along the south coast of Newfoundland. And after removing well over 60,000 pieces of garbage, you know, you start to lose your mind over time, of course, with just seeing how much trash is in the ocean. But it really gets you thinking on, you know, what's necessary in our lives. Do we, like you said, do we really need to um, double plastic wrap a plastic toy, um, you know, at Christmas time when you know things are actually just going to go straight into the garbage into to Robin Hood Bay uh, landfill and eventually end up in the ocean? So it's really thinking about this idea of production and making sure that we just reduce it from the start because with recycling and all that, it's expensive to get stuff off of island to actually have it recycled. 
So you nailed it on the on the head with uh, mentioning reduction in production, because really at the end of the day, um, you know, restricting the use of straws and plastic bags are great. It's a great first step, but it's not the be it all solution, right? We we need to really move beyond thinking about plastic as types of items and really thinking about these the material. Do we really need like styrofoam? in packaging when we know that it just does not recycle well and it will inevitably end up in a landfill or in the ocean. And we know that there's options, right? You know, nobody wants to have a flimsy, soggy straw, but, you know, the the other side of that coin is nobody wants to find out decades from now that the impact on nanoplastics has been really detrimental to my health, whether it be circulation or anything else under the sun, impact on my central nervous system. We just don't know, but we must know this, regardless of your, uh, your academic status, it can't be good for you. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it's it's even it's a humbling experience too. I have to say, like cleaning up beaches, you know, that have never had cleanups before surveys done. And you hit a beach and you find plastics from the 1960s and you realize that, you know, our planet's becoming somewhat of an archive for all our waste. And, you know, really, is that the legacy that we want to leave for our next generations is, you know, traces of our, our existence uh, into the future of like, like you said, like straws and, and different items. So yeah, just being conscious of that. And then also for wildlife, right? Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was a great thing that people were using masks uh, to protect themselves and their families. But one unfortunate consequence that came out of it was this idea of like, use a mask, uh, it's super windy in St. John's, it blows away, it goes across the parking lot, it's lost, right? Um, this was happening all over the world at the same time. And unfortunately, one thing my, my colleagues and I observed were the number of posts on social media with animals being tangled up and eating, you know, these really gnarly pieces of plastic. Um, just picture like the elastic bands on a mask and, you know, that being able to tangle um, up with seabirds and things like that. So there were cases of that all over the world. And if anything, COVID kind of showed in a very small amount of time how human behavior totally influences. It can have a really notable impact in the environment and, and on wildlife. And given the wildfire season, masks are making a bit of a comeback in places where the air quality index is really quite poor. And as I mentioned earlier, Toronto had the worst air quality index of any city in the world yesterday. It was actually deemed hazardous versus unhealthy like in Delhi. Uh, truly amazing. Exactly. Well, and it's 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 incredible. Like you said, I think masks. You know, at, at one point, I think everyone kind of just took them off and thought, okay, the pandemic's done. We can go back to business as normal. But I mean, with the impacts of climate change and obviously like future pandemics down the line, um, you know, I feel like masks are going to be part of our daily apparel at one point. And you know, just being conscious of how we dispose of them is really important. But the next step, I think, we need to do is innovate uh, materials that. That, you know, aren't just going to add another unfortunate like um, part of our record into the environment. We we don't want two generations down, you know, finding discarded masks. You know, <laughs> um, talking about you know the COVID nineteen pandemic back in the day. Um, it would be nice if we had materials that actually you know didn't have all these issues attached to them as well. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a picture of a leatherback turtle with a beer can uh, plastic around its head or any other animal trapped with some piece of plastic that we just willfully discarded. And it wasn't the mm-hmm. company that sold you the plastic. It was your fault that it ended up in the ocean. A bit of personal responsibility goes a long way here. Okay, so, you know, 
when you look at the issue of plastic, we know that there's organizations out there, their full-time thing is hauling plastic out of the world's oceans. If you've ever seen some of the swirls and the tons, if not millions of tons of plastic swirling around in the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, it's well worth your time to have a look because it is obscene and it's nobody's fault but ours. Yeah, and to be honest with you, um, Patty, one one thing that I really want to highlight to the audience is it's it's similar to any any environmental impact, right? You can do a certain amount within your daily life that will help reduce the amount of plastics. Of course, we can all decline uh, single-use bags at the grocery stores, and we can uh, not take straws and all these different types of items. But I think what's worth highlighting here is the fact that you know these massive companies that are selling us objects on a daily basis that continuously use wrapping that we don't ask for. Um, we don't ask to, to purchase that along with the item. And we necessarily don't have the means of disposing it the right way. We really need to start putting the pressure on these companies like the big grocery stores in Canada um, to really rethink on how they're packaging items because it's not a sustainable path. And like, to be honest with you, we, we really can't afford to be going in this direction much longer. So daily action goes a lot of way, but writing to your local politicians, getting uh, participating in campaigns, and cleanups, et cetera, like anything that raises attention to this problem will go a long way in the future. And please, to the listening public, don't tell me that this is virtue signaling because it's not. This is not liberal or conservative. <laughs> this is not socialist or communist or Marxist. This is the reality of life here. Uh, last question before I let you go, Justine. Sure. What kind of work is actually being done to have a better understanding of long-term impact on seabirds, other marine life, and consequently me with the nanoplastic. Is it going to be a matter of decades before we know, at which point it may indeed be too late? So how does that process work? Do you happen to know? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I started off in the plastic the plastic pollution world about seven years ago, and it was just amazing to see within the matter of years how much public uptick uh, there was with this issue. And, you know, that obviously influenced a lot of people to get into the problem with researching and finding out, you know, just how bad microplastics are on, on wildlife. And within the past few years, uh, the amount of studies that have come out have just skyrocketed. I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing to try to open up to see the new papers that are coming out just because there's so many. So I don't think it's going to be much longer, really, until we have a more holistic understanding of, you know, just how plastic impacts animals of all scales from, you know, the smallest uh, uh, dove or bull bird uh, down in Bay Bulls uh, all the way up to humans and, you know, how it impacts our lungs and, you know, how plastics stay in our tissue. And one thing I just want to touch on, Patty, that you mentioned uh, with this issue being restricted to, like, liberals and uh, kind of folks on the left, um, that's not necessarily the case at all. I mean, you know, the reason why I got into environmental science was because I cared about the environment. And honestly, I just want it to be there and to have uh, integrity for the next few generations down the line. And I don't think that's restricted to, like, any political view. It's, it's really important. A lot of us actually sacrifice quite a bit to do this, this kind of work. And I think it's really important that... Um, you know, we, we engage with uh, everyone around us because at the end of the day, we all share this environment. Absolutely. That's 100% true. And, uh, you know, it's uh, tomato, tomato, you say bull bird, I say dove key. Yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's good to have you on the at show, the Justine. Today, all, final final yeah. thoughts to you. Sure. Oh, fi final thoughts that I have. Yeah, before we oh, have to perfect. say goodbye, unfortunately. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to, to to share with the audience, you know, it's really easy to make personal choices in your life, um, to really reduce plastics. And regardless of if you live in central Newfoundland, if you're on the peninsula, you know, if you're close to the ocean or if you're interior, um, all our actions directly impact our oceans. And our oceans are connected to fresh water, which are connected to land. So really just making sure that, you know, you take whatever actions you can in your daily life and then, you know, raise attention to bigger, bigger bodies, you know, talk about this with your friends and family and you know maybe one of your your friends has a shop um, that can reduce the amount of plastics they're bringing in I mean it's all a ripple effect and I think that that's the beauty of this issue is that working together we can really make a big difference with it and we, we have within the past 10 years appreciate your time good luck with your work Justine nice to have you on the show Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Justine Amendolia. She's a PhD student at Dalhousie University. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a protest schedule uh, for Confederation Building coming up. About what and when, we'll find out. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Raquel. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's Rachel, by the way. Uh, my, par- my apologies. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, So I'm here to bring attention to a protest that's happening tomorrow at the Confederation Building around 12 o'clock. It's in support of education that's inclusive of LGBTQ plus people and also supportive of our teachers in the community who have been under attack recently for putting off pride events in school. Um, So a local hate group called NL Media planned a protest for tomorrow under the guise of protecting children and standing up for parents' rights, but... In reality, it's absolutely not about protecting children, and it's about spreading fear and disinformation about the queer and trans community. Some of the, look, I mean, if people want to talk about uh, sexual orientation and sexual ideology and age appropriateness, okay. But when it's taken to the length that some people are willing to do and the way they just so grossly mischaracterize what's happening, all it does is, you know, because they're talking about protecting children. But what they are not acknowledging is that some of the way they approach this issue is absolutely making it a dangerous situation for children. I don't know how that doesn't creep into the way they talk about these issues it's the furthest thing from pragmatic it's not only you know unnecessary fear but you're actually putting people in physical danger so uh, again how can you have it both ways let's protect the children but let's also put them at danger or at risk absolutely so one of the biggest things that happened recently is uh saint matthew's elementary school in saint john's they had some pride celebrations which included an age-appropriate performance by a drag queen and some local bigots just kind of took it and ran with it and unfortunately the videos were spread far enough that um, they caught the attentions of the likes of maxine bernier the leader of the ppc party and some american far-right hate pages and this has escalated into teachers being uh, called pedophiles and Rumors. People have threatened to shoot up the school. Um, a local woman has threatened to uh, show up at school board meetings and confront the principal and the school board, follow children into school. So this has just gone really, really far. And it's all because the staff at St. Matthew's wanted to put off a fun day for their students, um, which is not something that I think is uh, fair or something that I think should be acceptable in Newfoundland today. Well, you know, I, I, I do think that we have found ourselves in a place where culture wars and these types of issues, they dominate conversations. Look, th- nobody but nobody wants to put a child at any sort of level of risk, regardless of the issue, physical, emotional, mental, sexual. What Nobody wants that. Like, I, I, I just find it to be 
absurd that if you are indeed understanding of what's going on in the community and trying to talk about the right time and the right age and the psychological impact to talk about things like this in school that all of a sudden nobody cares about children like I, I just don't really get it and when we have politicians that that's all they have to offer is woke this woke that basically they're telling me that they have they've run out of ideas so I don't know where this is going to go but I think I've heard through the grapevine that there's going to be a counter protest to yours we've seen how some of these interactions between groups with different thoughts on the matter have led to some pretty serious outcomes. We can only hope that's not what happens tomorrow at Confederation Building. Are you aware of the fact there will be a counter-protest? Uh, yes. So our protest, the uh, protest that's inclusive of LGBTQ plus people is actually the counter protest. The original protest oh, was see. planned <laughs> by, yeah, the, the original protest was planned by NL Media, which, as I stated, is a local uh, hate group. They, they like to spread, you know, disinformation. Um, and so in response, uh, Sarah Worthman has been uh, heavily involved in planning this event. She's the founder of the NL Queer Research Initiative, which has been documenting the history of LGBTQ plus people in the province. Um, and so um, our protest is in response to NL Media's, and we've received significantly more support so far. Uh, so we're hoping that the turnout for the inclusive protest is going to be much higher than for the original one. We'll see where it goes, and I hope that it is a, a protest on either side that just happens because there was one video I've seen that was outside a school board meeting where they were taking a vote on these types of matters, pride issues and pride concerns and pride celebrations inside one school, and it ended up being quite a dangerous situation for all involved. So fingers crossed that's not what we see here. I appreciate the time this morning, Rachel, and I apologize for calling you Raquel off the top. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. That's a tricky issue. I mean, there's a way to have those absolutely difficult conversations. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think we're doing a very good job in society in general, at large, with navigating with any sort of mature, pragmatic uh thought process because it's a bit too important to get wrong because at this moment of time it seems like we're getting it wrong much uh, more frequently than we're getting it right uh let's take a break for the news how are we doing on the phone dave when we come back plenty of time for you do not go away your vocm mornings with jerry lynn Mackey and ben murphy 5 30 to 9 a.m weekdays on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go to line number one good morning michelle you're on the air good morning pat how are you i'm very well thanks how about you I'm good, thank you. Um, I have been back in the province now for almost a month, um, and the, lots of talk about the nursing shortage in Newfoundland, and I listened to Miss um, Yvette Coffey um, also on a radio program discussing a, about the shortage, the uh, contract labor, and the plan of retention of nurses within Newfoundland. And so just briefly, a brief history. Um, I'm a Newfoundland-trained nurse. I graduated from Cornerbrook in 1991. Um, in 1991, in July, when we graduated, there was, you know, the budget cuts come down. And we went from having, um, you know, jobs for almost everybody in our graduating class to very few of us having jobs. And many of us went to the U.S. at that time. I went to California, had to write my state boards there to be able to be licensed in the U.S., and um, worked in the U.S. Um, well since 91 to now. 
so um, about six months ago, I knew that I wanted to come back to Newfoundland to work. And so the two things that I have run into, um, the first thing being that um, Eastern Health on their webpage, they have over 200 job openings right now, I think. And so, you know, as far as my background in nursing goes, I'm very well trained and very well qualified for a lot of those jobs. Lots of experience um, through different, um, you know, areas of nursing. But I have applied for several positions through um, Eastern Health. I've put in the applications. I've sent the resumes. Um, And I've never heard back from Eastern Health. Now, unlike Eastern Health, there's another long-term care community here in St. John's who sourced me through Indeed. And I sent them an application, a resume. Within two hours, I had booked an interview and come back to the province and interviewed and within a week was offered a job. And still to this day, have not heard anything from Eastern Health. I just don't get it. You know, we've also been told that some people applying for jobs as nurses, whether they be brought in from India or graduates here, are being offered just one job, long-term care. And then I hear stories like yours where they're not even getting an opportunity to get a reply when we hear constantly, whether it be from the Registered Nurses Union or the Health Authority itself, that there are huge gaps in healthcare professionals, including registered nurses. Yvette Coffey tells us that there's 750 vacancies right this minute. There's also somewhere in the neighborhood between 900 and 1,000 approaching retirement age. So if that all happens before we start to backfill positions, and not just do the status quo, but add to the numbers of nurses, the bad situation is going to be worse in a heartbeat. Yes. And, and, you know, being in, again, I've only been back for, for a little bit less than a month, but I have been working. And, you know, there, there's a big difference in where you have been trained. And, um, um, you know, when you do the comparison weather, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, and I think everybody, um, you know, deserves the opportunity, but whether it's the language barrier or, you know, where you were trained, the difference in the equipment that you were trained in, any of those things, the U.S. and Canadian healthcare are very similar, despite, you know, whether Canada is a social um, uh, background or, or and, and the U.S. is not. There's, we're still very similar trained. So the fact that I can't even get an a, a interview um, when I have years and years of long-term care experience, hospice experience, you know, ER, the OR, But the second thing that I want to point out, Pat, is this. So I've always wanted to work with Indigenous services. It was one of the jobs that I applied for back when I first graduated and didn't hear from them in a timely manner. So I ended up going to California. So in March, um, I did uh, apply for, I did get offered a position with Indigenous services. So I was at the time in the process of getting my Newfoundland nursing license back, and that was a fairly quick process, and it it worked really well, and they were very open to communication and helping. But within getting my Newfoundland license, I had to do a security check, and you would expect that. So Indigenous services within Canada itself they have another background check, and that has been out. So I still don't have the results of that background check. And my deadline to get this paperwork in now to start in September is July. 
So I was supposed to start in May, and I didn't get my paperwork done, and now it's moved to July. So, and here we are, you know, moving into the second week of June. So there's that background check. And then within Manitoba to get my nursing license there, I had to go through the FBI in the U.S. to get a background check and fingerprints and do an international language test. And so some of those processes for those results are still outstanding. So I don't know how they expect to fill positions and fill them quickly like they need to do if all of these roadblocks are put in the way I mean, you know, for most of us in nineteen in the in the in nineteen nineties, we left Newfoundland because we wanted to work as nurses, not because we wanted to leave. And now that some of us want to come back home, the opportunity to do that, I mean, you've got to. There's so many hoops to jump through; it's almost impossible. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've been talking about fast-tracking the process for accreditation from the some two to 300 uh, nurses from India that will be here by the end of the year. But how that doesn't translate to a veteran nurse with decades of experience from the United States living here, graduated from the Cornerbrook Nursing School however many years ago, it, it's just hard to wrap your mind around. Like, there seems to be a disconnect that no one can really fully understand. You know, left yeah. and the right hand are generally not speaking to each other very clearly or communicating very clearly inside a government but when this crisis is documented and headlined every single day you would think that every single uh, rock would be turned over and whichever nurse is out there would be yeah. in the system to sweet yes yes and so what i'd like to say to miss coffee is that you know the idea of retaining nurses is great but you have to get them in the system before you can retain them and and these these steps, like I said, I'm still doing backflips to try and get, um, you know, into Indigenous services where I would really love to be or into Eastern Health where I would really love to be. I've accepted a casual nursing position outside of that because that was who was responsive to what I needed. And you did mention that, you know, healthcare in the United States and the training for healthcare professionals, uh, Canada and the United States, is very, very similar. I would imagine, of course, we all know the structure of healthcare and universal healthcare here and the mess that it is in the United States, but I would think the experience on the floor is very similar. It, it is very similar. And, and the biggest difference is, of course, you know, the names of medications because there's different manufacturers. Sure. But you don't need to dig very deep before you find the common name. And, you know, just just to say, um, Pat, you know, when we graduated from, from Cornerbrook and went to California, we were so um, well trained because most of our program then, right, was clinical. It's not like it was in the States then or even now where a lot of it has to do with the university courses we were clinically trained so when we got on the floor in the u.s we were training their new grads that's how well trained we were coming from a newfoundland program and i don't know if i don't know if we've forgotten that in newfoundland that that your graduates your nurses who were trained in newfoundland were very well trained and i think it should hold some weight 
Well, there was actually incentives for exactly that person. You know, I can't remember the dollar amount, but we called it the Come Home Here Incentives. And it was people who are from here, trained here, have a relationship with the province. They were actually going to get an incentive to come home and rejoin the workforce here, as opposed to your experience of coming back to the province, jumping through endless hurdles, and not even getting uh, anyone to speak with you from Eastern Health. It's really mind-boggling. Michelle, you said you left here, went to uh, to California because you wanted to be a nurse. Uh, Where else did you live in the United States, just out of curiosity? Oh, Florida, Texas, Maryland, California, Georgia. Um, I, I did travel nursing all over for about eight years. Fantastic. Uh, did you have and a favorite? I settled in Georgia for, for the rest of it. Where were you in Georgia? Um, I was in um, Gainesville and um, for the most of it. But when I settled in Gainesville, it was a very tiny community hospital. And I decided to settle in Gainesville because the people there were very much like the people in Newfoundland. They were just people. Nothing else mattered other than that you were just a good human being. So that's the main reason why I settled there. Um, but, you know, there comes a time when, when I guess, you know, they say, how do you tell a Newfoundlander in heaven they're the ones who want to come home? Well, there comes a time, you know, when some of us just want to come home. And um, I'm not ready to retire from nursing, but it's very, um, it's very frustrating to hear you know, how short everything is and and what the government's going through and where they're spending their money and who they're recruiting and and the pay that's going out there. And, um, you know, I've spent, and it's a very costly process to to come back to Newfoundland to work, to get your license and get all these background checks and everything done. It's very costly. But, um, you know, I I just, like I said, I I just want it to come home and I just want to work in the system. And um, it's, it's more than difficult. It's very, um, um, if I had not sold my house in Georgia already and purchased in St. John's, I would already be considering going back to the U.S. because this process is so frustrating. I appreciate you telling us about this as much as it is troubling and bewildering. I appreciate the time this morning, Michelle. I did spend a little bit of time in Georgia. I had some family in Savannah, and you mentioned Gainesville. There's also Gainesville in Florida where you said you lived as well. There is, yeah. Yeah, but Savannah, Georgia is one of my favorite places to be. It's just beautiful. And the history, the history is amazing. Like the history in St. John's is just amazing when you start looking around and digging. Yeah. Nice to have you on the program, Michelle. uh, Keep us in the loop if anything changes for the better. Okay, thank you. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. All right. Bye bye. Uh, lovely blend, albeit subtle, of her home-grown uh, accent and a little bit of the southern drawl mixed in. Interesting. And of course, one of my my mother's sister, Audrey, uh, rest in peace, uh, married an American serviceman, spent most of her adult life in the United States, and it always uh, jumped out at me that her drawl was really so thick as a girl from the Cove. <laughs> anyway, great stuff. She was a lovely woman. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number four. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Daddy? Okay, how about you? Not too bad. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to touch base again. Uh, we haven't chatted since I called in about the uh, potential for Newfoundland Healthcare to take masks, mandatory masks, out of healthcare facilities. And lo and behold, if, you know, like a week later, they did it. So um, I've started working with a couple of groups here in uh, Eastern Canada. They're called POP groups, so they're Protect Our Province, uh, PEI, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, uh, and so on. And what we're doing is starting an awareness campaign. So 
uh, we're going to be contacting pretty much every healthcare official, every business, every clinic, every everyone who works in that realm and asking them to reinstate those masking mandates to keep people safe. Yeah, now people still have the option of wearing them. I was in the hospital for a procedure one day last week, and just from my base observations, not scientific, just what I saw, about half were wearing them. I was a little bit surprised, to be honest. Well, that's good. That's uh, <laughs> it's a better improvement than what we're seeing out in public. But um, you know, this is a what we're seeing around the country is we're, the places that have dropped the mandatory masking in healthcare facilities are seeing uh, lots of staff absenteeism due to sickness, and then we're seeing a rise in cases in those provinces. So, specifically speaking, uh, BC and Prince Edward Island were two of the first to drop mandatory masking in healthcare facilities. Right now, they're currently ranked number one and two in COVID infection uh, severity in the country. So um, Newfoundland is a close third um, right behind PEI. So what we want to see is, uh, you know, this, these advocacy groups we're going to be working with, uh, they started a website, it's called covidawareness.org. And what they're going to do is put all the information they have on the, you know, delayed effects, adverse effects of COVID on that uh, website. And then they're going to start advocating in their, their uh, respective provinces just to sort of start getting these, uh, you know, essential areas to be, uh, to have an increased uh, level of uh, COVID awareness and safety. So, You know, and you and I both know the reality, Keith, is that it's, it's a mindset issue where people are sick and tired of it. It has been overwhelming for so many for so long that even mention of COVID gets people just irritated. I know where you're coming from. It's not gone away. The COVID hub was updated yesterday. Three additional COVID-related deaths here in this province. So yeah. it's not gone. It's just how people are going to proceed with their life. And, you know, I don't even think that public health has the stomach for going back down any restrictions-type road. You know, even though at some of the political party conventions they've been talking about vaccinations and masking and all the rest of it. I don't know if there's a political or a public or a public health appetite for going anywhere near back down those roads. Well, see, Patty, the, the, the problem is, is that like workforce, right? So we, we've, we've made decisions uh, surrounding COVID based on workforce and availability of workers and, you know, keeping healthcare running and things like that. So what we're, what we found out now, so we're past the, the phase of let's find out, what the long-term effects are of COVID because we know what the short-term ones are. And what it is, is so long COVID effects, a, a high percentage of people, way higher than they, they thought. They thought it was like 1%, but it's more of uh, 10% of the people who get infected. But even worse, uh, according to the World Health Organization, every 10 infections. So if you get 100 infections, then, you know, 10 of those uh, could wind up having somebody out of commission for, you know, extended periods of time. Now, this isn't, you know, they get it and they, they can't, walk you know work again but there are thousands of people who can't work and so if we continue on this path of hey we're not going to have any restrictions because we're tired of it we're sick of it we're going to set ourselves up for a lot more issues that we're going to be way more tired of and way more sick of like going to the grocery store and shelves aren't stocked or going to the hospital and having 16 hour waits because there's too many people out sick and you're going to lose people permanently right so uh, with anything i mean people can only the body can only take so much so if we're if we're thinking about long term here, and this is what we have to do, I mean, we've passed the point of we well we wonder what the damage is because now we know there's thousands of studies showing all the different damages, and it's terrifying. And I know people don't want to hear it, 
but that's where you know the, the education portion comes in. If you just ram info down people's throats, it's not going to. They're not going to digest it. They're not going to you know take it in, and they're not going to make decisions based on it. That's why we need to have a comprehensive education program about COVID. We did it with AIDS. So when AIDS came on the scene back in the 80s and 90s, at, at first it was like everyone was scrambling, and then they figured stuff out, and then they delivered that info, and then people could make informed decisions. You don't want to panic people. You don't want to you know, force them to do things. You want to say, listen, this is what could happen if you don't. And I think if more people were, were better educated by our government, by our healthcare leaders, then they'd make better informed decisions. Uh, uh, last thing, because I really do have to go, is I don't yeah. know the prevalence of long COVID, but what I do know is that if we don't acknowledge it, we will, we'll, we will indeed not have uh, preparations like they have in other provinces where they have acknowledged it. They've established long COVID clinics and consequently disciplines that would be associated with these patients. Here, not so yeah. much. So it's going to be every man, woman for themselves if when you have long, persistent uh, COVID-related symptoms. Uh, Keith, you've had the last word. I appreciate the time. Excellent. Thanks, Patty. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, I know people don't want to talk about it. I get it. I mean, I would imagine I get it just about as good as anyone, considering the, how much it was part of our everyday life. Just remember, it's not that long ago that it was 1 o'clock, all hands, eyes peeled on the COVID update. Every day became absolutely overwhelming, is the, putting it mildly. All right, good show. Big thanks to everyone who appreciates the program or supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.